So, guess what I picked up this week? What'd you get? I got the uh, new release of the Vince Guaraldi uh, soundtrack to It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown, which has been released on uh, album or CD, and you can hear it on your streaming services for the first time ever. Wow. Yeah, and part of the reason that is, I found out because I listened to it today, and I was like, it's because it's all, it's not really uh, jazz tunes. It's more like music cues for the specials, and mm. they've they've organized the uh, CD, the music, to be sort of in the order of the specials. You can almost imagine it like in your head, mm. except that you don't have the voices over it. Now you can just hear all this music. But it as a jazz album, it's, it's not a terribly satisfying listen. It's only 30 minutes long, oh. and it's kind of like, a lot of reprises of the same material and things like that. What's nice about it, though, is that he he has a flute on this, and I finally know. One of the nice things is I finally know who the musicians are, although they they were probably in the credits at the end. So he's got a jazz flute, and I think this is my love of the jazz flute can uh, be traced back to it's the great <laughs> pumpkin Charlie Brown. It, it might be might early just, impressions. Yeah, an early impression. I don't know. I really like the way it sounds. The woodwinds player is ronald lang it's the vince guaraldi sextet although they never all play together i don't oh. think he's got a trumpet on there too it's very subtle though emmanuel klein hmm. john gray guitar and then his kind of trio is him monty budwig on bass and colin bailey on drums on that record so it's really just musical cues it's it's kind of an unsatisfying album to listen to but i mean if you like the special and you just grew up with that music it's just wonderful to have these uh these tunes readily available to you like this. And I, I've always loved the the Great Pumpkin Waltz, which I feel is like uh, the innocence uh, embodied in music, you know. And you don't really think of jazz as being like, uh, as um, putting across innocence. But uh, I don't know, I guess Vince Guaraldi uh, succeeded in doing that. So I guess that's an achievement. Huh. It's a nice companion to the Christmas album. Well, the Christmas album is a proper album, though. Yeah. They, those tracks are all fully realized, you know. Right. Right. Speaking of which, there's a new uh, release, of, there's a deluxe edition release of the Christmas album coming out in October by Vince Guaraldi, A Charlie Brown Christmas. It's going to be four CDs plus a Blu-ray disc. Oh. And the, uh, so it's a remastered, and then they have three discs are going to be like just the, the sessions, uh, which could be interesting, but they'll probably be like bitty like this album is too, okay. so really for like f big fans only, like me. Right. <laughs> and then the Blu-ray is going to have the... Uh, I guess they do 96 kilohertz like audio, you mm -hmm. know, on on that. So they'll have like uh, just that on the Blu-ray disc, Blu-ray audio. So it'll be okay. kind of probably more sh a sharper sound. And then they're gonna have a Dolby Atmos mix of the album, <laughs> which of course I can't play because uh, my my stereo stops at five speakers and you need at least seven, <laughs> I, as far as I know, for Dolby Atmos. Why do they do that? Who has this? I don't know. I hope there's a five-channel mix on it. That would be cool. But, you know, I hope they're not just bypassing us mm. uh, us um, five-channel people now. Oh, we'll have to wait till it comes out because it's also <laughs> it's pretty expensive. Um, the retail price is like $99, Ooh. but right now Amazon has it at 78 but it'll okay. probably come down a little more. But that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that diehard of a fan. So It's a nice-looking box, nice box set, though, so... All right. Well, it's good to know. I mean, I always listen to the Christmas recording every year, especially the new version that came out for the 50th anniversary. See, I've kind of substituted the Rick Gallagher one for that because he's kind of in the similar style, but he's got oh, a lot more tunes. I like them both. Christmas Times here is a great tune. It's a great one, yeah. 
That's still months off. Let's not talk still about months it. off. All right. Yeah, I always hold off to the last minute for Christmas music, and we'll do that again this year. I, I'm a little early. Than you. I start like November. I my rule is November 22nd. It doesn't matter when okay. Thanksgiving is because November see. 22nd is Saint Cecilia's Day. So for me, the day after Saint Cecilia's Day, for me, is the official beginning of Christmas. All right. Even though it's not even even in the church, it's not because Advent starts like what four weeks before mm. Christmas. So there's it's usually later than Thanksgiving. So all right. Well, plenty of yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Alright, you're listening to the Adult Music Podcast Featuring music for the mature mind Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown And much more Well, that's um, that, that matured my mind Let's just put it that It was like a stepping stone I'm your co-host Russ And over there is Is Mike, yeah The, the man with the Charlie Brown uh, Great Pumpkin album Good Memories of Childhood Yeah And this here is episode 79 And tonight is going to be a piano-centered album episode with a big variety of music at the keyboard. Before we get into that, I'm going to remind everyone that uh, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for everything we'll discuss. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. You can also follow us there on the podcast on Deezer. Just look for our username, Adult Music Podcast. And if you don't see the full description, or list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, or the links aren't clickable, come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. And if you give us a ranking or take a moment to write a review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations in the music categories, helps us grow our audience, and we're always happy for that. You can also follow us on Facebook, Check out our page there to get extra info and more new release information throughout the week. You can leave a message or comment on our page as well there. And if you want to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Now, last week we had a, a lot of uh, sad Yes, sadness. <laughs> we had to play the uh, necrology theme for the passing yeah. of... Um, we had to think of minor keys. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're musicians. Sad. Now, this week we have, uh, oh, it's not really sad news. It's kind of amazing news, in fact. And yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a little bit, there's a little teardrop in this news. A little teardrop. That. There's a little caveat, yeah. though. It may, may not be the end, but uh, that is uh, the uh, kind of kind of retirement of the great trumpeter, Doc Severinsen. Yeah, who is how old? 95 years old. 95 years old. Wow. And he's just played what probably his last official gig or touring gig in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, up in wow. my old neck of the woods, the Universal Preservation Hall on September 1st. With this little group of musicians that he met when he, I guess after he kind of retired from his uh, Tonight Show gig or whatever, he was down in Mexico, met these musicians who didn't know who he was and struck up a friendship and he's been playing with them ever since. And, wow. Um, yeah, and he's so, playing the trumpet, too. Playing the trumpet, yeah, still at 95 at years old. Yeah. So he's still getting like a big, strong tone. That's amazing. I heard him a couple of years ago, and he still sounded pretty good. Yeah. Apparently, he still practices four hours a day and goes to the gym good three God. days a week. So And goes to the gym three yeah. days a week. Wow. If you're looking for your uh, long life uh, tonic, 
think about those two things. If I were 95, I'd be reading books and listening to CDs. Yeah. I'd be sitting <laughs> Same in Same as you're doing now. <laughs> Maybe I'd get up for a half an hour of exercise. Yeah. I anyway, I read the, the local mm. uh, news thing, and he said, well, you know, this is the last official gig, but I might still play out <laughs> now and then if I feel like it. So yeah. uh, anyway, that brought back a good memory uh, to me. And um, when I was uh, 17... High school. I had my first car, and Tuesday nights I would drive in. I was studying trumpet with a trumpet player in the Albany Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And it was, it was a couple of interesting things. He had these cats in his house. You know, normally cats will run away from loud sounds, but his cats were either deaf or just immune. So they would sit around the house <laughs> in the trumpet lesson. And when we would finish, you know, the lesson playing through, you know, classical stuff, we would always just talk trumpet and musicians. And I think I brought up Doc Severinsen because he had released a, a solo recording in the late 80s that I had. And I mentioned, oh, you know, he's such a great player. So Hank went over to his record stack and he pulled out this, you know, big uh, vinyl recording on this completely white, kind of blank uh, cover and he put it on and uh, I heard this amazing music and uh, what it was was a recording of Doc Severinsen with the high school band that he conducted in the 60s I think it was South Colony Central School District anyway this was before the Tonight Show had moved out to California the first right. 10 years or so, we're still in New York. After Steve Allen and Johnny Carson took over, Doc Servinson was uh, leading the orchestra. Time. He's also you know, playing uh, recording sessions in New York. And he would go around as a guest soloist clinician with high school bands. And so Hank had called him up and recorded the concert he did with the high school band. And that's several classical compositions on there. And also the old Rafael Mendez, The Virgin of Macarena. Mm-hmm. And I just love Doc Severinsen's version of that. You can actually find some other versions from around the same time, 66 or 67 on YouTube with other high school bands that people recorded. And mm-hmm. his technique is just flawless. And, you know, some people will always say the men, you know, Mendez could play it better. But I think there was no trumpet player who had the chops, amazing technique and that lightning sound, as well as great jazz ability as Doc Severinsen. He was in his 40s then, and he just kept on mm-hmm. going. Um, I have, I asked to borrow those records, and he let me, and I have them on tape somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. so I should really dig them out before they turn to mush and get them <laughs> digitalized, <laughs> along with a bunch of other things probably that only exist on tape in my collection. Um, yeah. But that was a good memory. Yeah, Doc Severinsen is someone who uh, people should know more about and take more seriously. He's, he's due for a... Yeah, yeah his recordings are probably due for a revival because you know, we associate him too much with Johnny Carson because he was on that show forever. Most Americans just knew him for his weird fashion yeah. sense, you know, and, and his weird bad fashion jokes. sense. Yeah. yeah, he took a few solos in the Johnny Carson show, and they were you know they were great, but you know, the yeah. show is all about Johnny talking to the guests. Yeah. But he was a he was a great uh, player himself. One of the greatest technical trumpet players, I think, of all time. And he had that lightning laser sound that we don't hear, you know, so much anymore. And uh, You know, I wonder if the guy at Yamato ya has any of his uh, recordings. We should go down there and find know. out. Yeah, you can find a lot of stuff going back to the 40s with him. So, Anyway, a true inspiration, still active at 95 years old. So, Yeah, one, one thing about in Japan, this is pretty interesting. Um, after uh, the war, a lot of these sort of, you know, people were poor obviously mm. <laughs> they had just lost the war and a lot of um people opened these uh jazz sort of um 
cafes or yeah, bars. Yeah, the coffee shop bars. was where you would go to hear jazz. Yeah. yeah, and people would go in there and listen to the the newest records. You know, like the uh, the owner would have them and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, some of these places still exist today. And one of them is uh, in Kyoto. The I shouldn't even say it because now people are going to go. But Yamato, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, famous because you know, a lot of uh, famous uh, people, including Chick Corea, played his uh, right. piano back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Chick Corea lived um, in Kyoto in the seventies for a while, actually, mm. and uh, he's got this enormous record collection. A lot of them signed by you know the the musicians who would come into right. his place. Um, I guess some of them still, I guess they still stop by there, but um, the couple is very very old now. So I think we're seeing the end of a lot of these yeah. places, unless they have an old. It's it's pretty amazing because he 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 he's an old guy. He keeps the bar, and his his wife changes all the records, so she's kind of in charge of, oh, okay. the, of the vinyl. Right. <laughs> but they're his records, you know. So she keeps the music playing. Yeah, a little anyway, piece of history there. Yamato ya in Kyoto. If you uh, take a trip, now's a good time to come because it's uh, really cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're I'm getting gills here. <laughs> Japanese the yen, yeah, really weak. One forty this week, but yeah. Oh wow. So so come to Kyoto and buy us a drink. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we need it. We need it. We right. need we need you to buy it for us because yeah. we can't afford it anymore. So anyway. fortunately, no no bad news, no other passings uh, to report this week. Uh, just a bunch of uh, interesting piano music uh, to share. So right. what do we got in the classical category? All right, so we're moving into uh, oh, you know, one more thing. Uh, the mm. Gramophone Awards list. Oh, uh, that's right. Came yeah. out. So I'm a big fan of this, and I was like looking down the list, and uh, yeah, we have there's some great records on there. Some that we did. I was happy to see uh, Mark yep. Andre Emlon's CPE Bach album mm-hmm. uh, on there. That'll definitely be on my year end list because you know there are a few I already know are going to be on the list, like three or four, but the rest I can't really, I can't really say. But uh, so they had that, and then they had a few that we did that we didn't really think too highly yeah. of. So I'm always wondering. <laughs> yeah, they have a voting process, though. That's the thing. But that means that enough people had to vote for these right, that uh, right. they got in. So I'm kind of. It's not that they're bad, but they're not like best of the year material. Mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder if they just kind of have these things as filler because they don't really know what else to put there or things like that. I won't mention what they are, but you can. Mm-hmm. If you go through all of our old episodes and look at the list, you could probably <laughs> you can figure compare. it out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so happy to, you know, kind of, I started listening to a few of those. There's, um, I was listening to the uh, Mahanas Fahani harpsichord recording of Bach's uh, Partidas, which right. are, they've put in their uh, instrumental category. And he's got a new album coming out of the Bach Italian Concerto and French Overture, which we'll definitely be talking mm. about eventually on this podcast, because I like his playing a lot. He gets this... Oh, it's just fan- he gets a fantastic, like very light sound. That he's mm. kind of he's got these little phrasing. If if you listen to his his playing, he's got these sort of little niceties of phrasing. That they're, they're a little odd, but they're really kind of charming, mm. and I really like hearing him yeah. know, on the harpsichord. Yeah. Anyway, that's for a future episode. Just wanted to mention that. So check out the Gramophone Awards shortlist. Just type that in, Gramophone Awards shortlist for all you classical fans out there. Okay, so we have a piano theme this week, do we not? Indeed. <laughs> do we do? So let's start with an early version of the piano, which we now... Na- okay, let me just talk about this. Uh, the forte piano, which um, it's now called the forte piano. Mm. I'll get into this in a minute. Let me just tell you the album. Uh, the composer is Johann Wilhelm Wilms, 1772 to 1847, which makes him a contemporary of Beethoven and Hummel and a lot of Czech mm. guys that we should know more about really and you know people in 
Eastern Europe. Anyway, the Piano Concertos, Volume 1, of what I guess mm. is going to be two volumes because it seems like he's written five concertos. Well, he's written seven, two mm. of which are lost, so there are five surviving ones, and we have three of them here. And the uh, pianist, the forte pianist, is Ronald Brautigam, who's sort of made a, a career out of now out of playing the this um, early piano. Now, the forte piano is the instrument Beethoven would have played. And Brautigam recorded the Mozart uh, concerti and the, all of the Beethoven sonatas, and I think all of the Beethoven piano concertos too, on this instrument. And uh, they're all on Beast Records, and um, they're on Super Audio CD, which just makes them sound really great because there's lots of focus on that. There's a nice warmth to the uh, DSD technique. Anyway, Brautigam was a student of Rudolf Serkin. I guess Peter Serkin hmm. was also a student of Rudolf Serkin. I don't know how that works, really. Don't I wonder know. if great pianists teach their children or they send them to someone else. I don't know. Anyway, Brautigam studied with Rudolf Serkin, one of the great pianists of the 20th century. And uh, he's with the... Uh, Brautigam is here with, accompanied by the Kerner Academy, conducted by Michael Alexander Villens. And this is on the Beast label, and it is an SACD. So you have your option of uh, two-channel and five-channel DSD, and you can also play it as a CD, too. Now, this week, I didn't listen to the five-channel. I'm kind of in two-channel mode because mm. I got to break in the uh, the Dolly speakers, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of want to get make sure they get all the bass possible. Otherwise, if I go to five-channel, you're gonna the bass is going to get into the subwoofer, and I don't want to... I'm not mm. doing that at the moment, but we'll get to that soon. Anyway, a little bit about the composer, Johann Wilhelm Willems. He was born in Witzhelden, which is near Cologne, or Köln, if you prefer, in Germany, and spent his professional career in Amsterdam. So he's kind of thought about as a hmm. Holland-based composer. Um, he was successful there, and he even wrote a tune that would become the Dutch national anthem for a while. Huh. Uh, I mean, it's not the national anthem now, though. I wonder why. They should have kept huh. it. Changed <laughs> it up. That's <laughs> he, interesting. It changed the national anthem. But his success didn't reach beyond the Netherlands borders. He kind of got stuck there. He had to write for the upper classes there, and they preferred glamour over artistic value in Amsterdam. <laughs> so think about uh, in that movie, um, Gladiator, you know, are you not entertained? So that's basically Wilms' <laughs> <Vilms's> career. <laughs> he had to entertain these mucky mucks, shall we say. Anyway, he wrote seven piano concertos, five of which survive. And we're going to hear three of them on this. Um, one interesting thing about all these, when you think of a concerto, you always get a little solo uh, part for the uh, pianist called the cadenza, where he plays without the orchestra. None of these concertos have cadenzas. Yeah. I, I found that. that really weird. <laughs> okay, so about the instrument. We call it a forte piano today. It was not called a forte piano back in the day. It was when it was uh, created. It was just a piano or... They use the Italian word pianoforte. Now, the modern word for a, a piano in English in Italian is pianoforte. We just made it shorter in English. Mm. And in fact, piano means soft and forte means loud. So it was called the soft loud. And the reason why it was called that was because, first of all, musicians are really bad at naming things. <laughs> and second of all, and so are musical scholars, by the way. Oh, man, if you read scholarly books on music it'll kind of drive you crazy sometimes the other thing is what was what was the first thing i said i'm already losing my mind here okay so yeah pianoforte um because the harpsichord couldn't do that the harpsichord right. always played at one volume if you wanted to make the harpsichord louder you needed a whole new keyboard this is why you see 
harpsichords with two or three keyboards on them yep. you know because they have uh they they play different strings like the, the uh, strings on the lower keyboard may, might be double so it's twice as loud as the top one which means it's still really quiet but the pianoforte the piano could get louder or softer depending on how hard you hit the key so that's why it's called a pianoforte shortened to piano in english now for the period instruments uh movement in the 80s 90s it's still going on really people started looking at these old instruments again and they found these old pianos and started playing them but they don't sound like a modern they don't have the power that a no. modern piano has they're kind of light and tinkly really sounding and um you can't really call it a piano you can call it an early piano i guess but they decided to just reverse the italian word and call it a forte piano a loud soft <laughs> Although I don't think the word loud belongs. No, loud doesn't go with uh, this instrument so much, yeah. Yeah, maybe they should just change the name and call this instrument a piano, and the modern piano should just be called a forte, because uh, most people play it. It doesn't really ever play terribly softly, you know. Not too often, know. no. Well, hmm. yeah, when they, even when they're playing softly, though, you can still be heard <laughs> with, an, with an orchestra playing, so yeah. there you go. Anyway, there you go. It's a pretty small instrument, and there's a picture of it in the uh, CD booklet, by the way. It kind of it's, it's a little bigger than a harpsichord, which means it's not mm. big at all. It has a very light sound. I've actually seen harpsichords. You can actually lift them off the floor. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're awkward, them. but they're very lightweight. And I think this forte piano in this picture looks like it could be physically lifted by one person, too. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't look like it's terribly heavy. The, the thing that makes the piano so heavy is the the iron harp inside mm. it that's like cast iron it's a piece of industrial material so it's it's really a product of the industrial age yeah so you can see a picture of that if you look if you get the cd and look inside the gatefold sleeve okay so we're going to hear three uh concerti and this is volume one as i said in what looks like it's going to be a two volume series so let's give this a sample okay first we have there are three concerti on this. I want to say this this album is 80 minutes long. It was really long, <laughs> but didn't seem that way. Um, of course, though, you're hearing three different concerti by the same composer. I broke these up. I didn't listen to mm -hmm. this whole album all the way through. I did hear two of them at the, in the same sitting, though. So, Anyway, the first one, three movements, concerto in E major, opus three for piano or harpsichord and orchestra. Now, that or harpsichord is kind of important because it means that he's not going to uh exploit all of the pianos um the new yeah. instruments abilities because he's you know he's uh this this work was probably written in 1796 hmm. so after mozart's death haydn is still alive at this time and uh beethoven is uh in writing his um first uh piano sonatas and piano trios and things like that yeah he's relying a lot on uh, kind of perpetual motion yeah. kind of lines in order to keep the sustain going right right so and to, to be honest the forte piano doesn't really have such a great sustain no, no. either no. <laughs> okay, so you have to do all these like sort of little tricks to make the audience think they're hearing a sustain this is another like little musical trick mm. beethoven's music requires a lot of long sustains that a modern piano can do but a piano of his time couldn't do so you had to kind of suggest that the sustain was there and the people would hear it it's kind of interesting how that works anyway first movement allegro starts with what's called a Mannheim rocket that's a rising figure it was famous i guess Mannheim orchestras kind of made it famous like it's like a rising arpeggio hmm. uh, called the Mannheim rocket 
so if you ever go back in your time machine to that time, you can say, oh, that was a good Mannheim rocket, and you'd fit right in. Anyway, <laughs> but before it came, or, or if you want to seem like a snob in front of your friends, you can say it too. <laughs> or if you want to chase away a snob, you can say, oh, I like the Mannheim rocket at the beginning of that piece, and they won't know what you're talking about. They'll, they'll slink away, <laughs> and you have won. Anyway, but before it can establish the mood, contrast is created by the insertion of motifs and digressions. Now, this whole idea of just sort of picking up an idea, almost like a jazz musician would, and just kind of digressing from the main I, the main structure of the piece into this, oh, that, this, this sounds really interesting to me. I think I'll explore it more. This is something that Vilms does quite a bit, and it's pretty interesting, I yeah. have to say. Now, of course, I'm comparing it to what a jazz musician would do. A jazz musician would do it in jazz style and rhythm. That's obviously mm. not happening here. But he'll just kind of go on these digressions, and I rather enjoyed them. Uh, in all three of these pieces, really. Um, the recording is very clear. In this particular piece, very trebly when the tutti plays, I mean, the whole orchestra is playing. The high end was was really strong. Mm. But that kind of stopped after a while. Or my ears adjusted. You never really know. Uh, the sense of uh, being recorded in a big space is audible. There's a lot of room reverb on the orchestra, especially in loud moments. But in quiet moments, you don't really hear that room reverb. Mm. It's kind of interesting. I would have preferred a bit less of it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's it, this is a really clean-sounding recording. And again, I didn't listen to this in five channels, so I, I'm interested to see how you know how isolated the piano would be in mm. that with all the extra space. The orchestra has a big, powerful sound, and when the forte piano comes in, it sounds rather small next to yeah. it. It's clearly audible, though, in its solo passages. So this is an excellent recording, I thought. The engineer did quite a nice job. There are nice accents in the orchestral accompaniment, at times to urge it along. But when the orchestra's playing at full volume, the poor forte piano practically disappears <laughs> into the texture. It's always audible when it matters, though. So I imagine this is the balance that was wanted. I don't think this was any, mm -hmm. you know, issue on the engineer's part. This is what he wanted, and this is probably how this would have sounded to audiences of the time. I have no problems with this personally, okay? So just to let you know, in case you're, this is an issue with you, listener. It may be Wilms' intention, given that this piece was advertised as also being for a harpsichord. There's no way a harpsichord <laughs> would be audible over this orchestra. No, no. <laughs> They're very quiet instruments. I can't even imagine. that You'd have to have a tiny orchestra if you're playing with a harpsichord. Yeah. I can't even imagine how that would work. I should mention, um, we're not hearing a harpsichord here, but if you ever hear a harpsichord live on a recording... It's recorded with the mic like inside, like the harpsichord. <laughs> it's lid, yeah. right? So it's set, you can turn it up loud. And it sounds like it's really present. But harpsichords don't sound like that. They're very, very quiet. You're getting the quality of the harpsichord, but you're not getting the uh, volume, the proper volume, if you're listening on a CD or an album. Anyway, this piece has a lot of scalar figuration, as Russ mentioned. Um, be, you know because it's also for the harpsichord as well. It's lively and cheerful, light and enjoyable. At 4 minutes and 38 seconds, we hear a nice surprise change of key as we head into a slight digression from the cadence, which we finally get at 5 minutes and 9 seconds. It's, it's a nice little trick. This hmm. isn't something uh, Mozart would do or even Beethoven. He just kind of gets interested. It, it kind of sounds like he's uh, you know, you're walking along the road with him, and he's like, "Oh, what's that? Uh, what's that in the grass?" And he just kind of walks <laughs> off the road and goes and picks it up, and your whole conversation is interrupted <laughs> while he investigates this uh, tin can he's found, <laughs> okay, or something like that. 
As that was the image I was getting. And it's charming. I don't mean to, mm. you know, be insulting or anything. I liked this. He was kind of like a a, a quirky friend, let's say, that you mm. really like, let's say. All right. So anyway, at five minutes and 42 seconds, the development starts with a solo by the Forte Piano. Uh, then the rather interesting slipping into different keys here fills out the rest of the development. We get a nicely set up false recapitulation starting at 6 minutes and 54. The real one doesn't come until 8 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> he really, he really kind of pulls the rug out uh, harmonically at 6 minutes and 54 seconds. It's really fun. Uh, there's a clever tonal sidestep into some extra material at around 10 minutes and 44 seconds. And the piece ends with the expected cadence. I should say, energetic playing by all performers. It's an uplifting movement. Okay, we go on to the second movement, Poco Adagio, the slow movement. Wilms, another quirk of his is that he likes unusual keys. And this movement is in E minor, which is the parallel minor <laughs> of E major. This is, usually isn't done. Usually you'll put it in a dominant key, mm. which would be, uh, for E major, would be uh, B major, right? But anyway, uh, and there are other options too, but this is a little odd to do. There's also an excursion in the contrasting key of E major. E major actually mm -hmm. makes an appearance in this movement too, which evokes the spirit of the outer movements, so it kind of feels like it belongs more. Uh, and the wind instruments have hunting motifs. Mm -hmm. like, people hunted back in those days a lot. It's like a aristocratic thing, I guess. All right, total contrast and themes here. This opening sounds bleak after the uplifting first movement. A little like the mood we get from the second movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. That's a funeral march. This is not a funeral march, but it does sound a bit bleak. Uh, the forte piano comes in with a somber theme after the brief introduction, interacts with the orchestra afterwards, the orchestra commenting on its statements, and there's a nice ticking motif to end the movement. The third movement, Rondo. There are cheeky appoggiaturas in this that allude to Mozart in the theme. You can hear them like, you know, these kind of, Hmm. Double notes, really quick double notes. Um, he's thinking of Mozart there. There's an E minor passage that shades the opening couplet and gives it a new profile. Okay, and it also recalls the uh, second movement. This is a this rondo has a very bright, playful, rustic theme to start the movement. You can hear appoggiaturas uh, giving it a more of a barnyard feel <laughs> than a real pastoral one. The first contrasting section remains high spirited. There's a sudden darkening to the minor. At a minute and 43 seconds, it's very noticeable, like a cloud suddenly covering the sun. You know, everything is bright and then suddenly, whoa, where'd that sunlight go? Wilms is full of little surprises like this, and for that reason, he's a kind of a bit of a discovery. I really mm. enjoyed this. Uh, we're back to E major for the cadence. We got back into the minor for the second contrasting episodes, which nevertheless keeps up the energy. The opening thing is played in the minor at 3 minutes and 12 seconds, which is kind of odd. <laughs> It's it's interesting. It leads to an open cadence and a pause, and new material is explored in the minor key. The mood darkens, the pace slows, and by the fifth minute, we're back in high spirits and in the main Ronto theme, and we go to the ending cadence, and that's the end of that concerto. The second work on this disc is Concerto in C Major, Opus 12, for piano and orchestra. No harpsichords allowed here. Hmm. Uh, this one was written in 1807. Now... Major things had happened in music by 1807. Beethoven's Eroica Symphony premiered in 1803. Well, he hasn't done his uh, Fifth Symphony yet. That's coming the next year, 1808. So things have changed a bit. In this particular work, the orchestra is more important than it was in the previous 
concerto. It's now got bassoons, trumpets, and timpani, which make a big impact. Also, its lines are more closely interwoven with the soloist, and that I was really interested in that, like picking that those melodic threads out. The first movement, Allegro, opens with a big fanfare, and I think the booklet says that's an echo of the French Revolution. At the time this concerto was published, the Batavian Republic, which became the Kingdom of Holland later, was under French rule and would get its independence in 1813, so there's already revolution in the air. The presence of the timpani warms up the sound a bit, giving more in the bass end. Again, Wilms will drift off into brief digressions from the main thematic markers before arriving at a bridge or a second theme. It's an interesting approach. The second theme arrives at 2 minutes 11 seconds or so. We get a nice trumpet fanfare at 2 minutes 54 seconds, sounding rich on period instruments. The forte piano comes thundering in as much as it can for a forte <laughs> piano at uh, 3 minutes and 10 seconds. He reaches the second theme at 5 minutes and 10 seconds after some soloistic flair. He gets a little bit of a digression, too. After this, there's an exuberant approach to the ex- exposition-ending tonic, which is put off by a sudden swerve to another key, then finally arrived at at 6 minutes and 57. Yes, a lot of harmonic uh, smoke and mirrors here. I really enjoyed that element of Wilms's composition. That's a lot of extra material. The orchestra finishes its cadence at 7 minutes and 40 seconds. Jeez, making a real meal of it by lingering around that tonic chord. They, I guess they need to balance out all the... Uh, the digressions uh, harmonically. We launch right into the minor key development, which sounds a lot darker suddenly, like we're lost in a deep wood. Force of Will by the soloist at 8 minutes and 35 seconds leads us back into the sunlight with a cadence at 8 minutes and 48 seconds, and we find ourselves back of the opening material at around 9 minutes with the piano playing solo. Incidentally, this is an image that keeps coming to me when listening to this music. This It's not darkness to light like Beethoven, but it's almost like you're just getting lost. I, this, <laughs> this is, I get this from Willems in general. Like It's almost like he's just veering off into this unexpected direction and he can't find his way back, and then he does. Kind mm. of, you know? <laughs> or he's just wandering around a bit, enjoying these new sights that uh, are fascinating him, and then he kind of gets back to the main road and you're like pulling on his you know, his collar saying let's go back <laughs> <laughs> okay anyway this slips back into the minor key then with a boom from the timps the timpani at 9 minutes 30 seconds we reach the actual recapitulation this is an interesting movement tonally uh, Wilms shows a lots of tricks to keep us on the edge of our seats wondering how long he can keep the minor key drama going at 11 minutes and 58 seconds, as we seem to be heading to the ending cadence, we get a surprise slip into the minor, the keyboard doing a lot of figuration to get us back to the main key, and we get a rather big final cadence by the orchestra with timpani at the end. Really fun. This is good. Mm. Second movement, Poco Adagio, the slow movement. Again, okay, so this um, is in, what do we say, C major? This is in the mediant key of E major, which is also very unusual. Mm. Timpani and trumpets are silent in this movement, and the other instruments add accents. The pretty opening theme is played by the strings with some nice wind accents. The forte piano takes over with the theme after that and gets some wind accents himself. At the two-minute mark, the horns get uh, some more pronounced material accompanying the forte piano. And at two minutes and 28 seconds, we get a surprising change to the minor, it's even played forte with an accent, and the forte piano forlornly explores that key 
at 2 minutes and 50 seconds. By the fourth minute, we're back in the median major key, and there are lots of harmonic teases up to the end, including with the final cadence, which is delayed for effect. Third movement, rondo. All three of these um, concerti are going to have rondos for the third movement, mm. which means like you're going to go away from the theme and then come back to it. Uh, this theme is suitably memorable, but not rustic like the one in the first concerto. It relies more on a repeating downward moving theme by the piano. It was really charming. I rather liked it. At a minute and six seconds, we're immediately into the first contrasting section. And in this section, there are some appealing dips into the minor key. Willems has a way of making the listener feel like he's taking... I already said this. Uh, wrong turn and now needs to figure out a way <laughs> out of the unknown road he's steered into. Which we inevitably do, of course. Here the theme is heard again at 3 minutes and 50 seconds after credential material and familiar ground. In the fifth minute, we get a sunny departure from the main rondo theme. This section has a lot of figuration for the forte piano soloist. At seven minutes, we hear the rondo theme again and happily go about our way to the very grand final cadence. The third concerto on the album, Concerto in D major, Opus 26, for piano and orchestra, written in 1810. Okay, so in musical history at this point, we've already had Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and uh, the world has changed for composers anyway, not necessarily for the people. And also, Haydn is dead by this time, I think. Or, or is he? Yeah, I think he is. Okay. Anyway, this starts with the Allegro first movement. It has an amiable chugging strings with a rising figure in the bass. Winds come in to fill out the harmony. There's a crescendo. High winds play the bridge. Then an oboe gets the second theme solo. Strings continue it. So there's a lot of trading around mm. of the theme here. It's really fun. As the opening chugging and rising bass figure comes back, the piano surprisingly makes its appearance early in the time frame with a big splash of tone. So he's we don't expect him there. He's just kind of showing up. Here I am. Okay, he then goes on to elaborate on the themes. The development begins at eight minutes. There's <laughs> a lot of <laughs> expositional material in these uh, works. With the repeating rising bass figure leading us into a new key area and the piano developing the various material. It feels like the pianist never stops playing once he makes his first entry. There's a lot of figuration in this movement. <laughs> we get back to the recapitulation of this rather harmonically ordinary, though thematically interesting movement, and head straight to the end without Wilms' digressions or harmonic trickery. Cheerful, energetic, uplifting. We kept him on the uh, the main road <laughs> during this um, <laughs> particular movement. Second movement, Poco Adagio. Median key, again, that, that odd third level of the uh, scale. F-sharp major is the key. First of all, it's odd enough to have the median key, but you're in D major. Now you're going to put a piece in F-sharp major. <laughs> That's really odd. Mm. Okay, it's a really odd key to be playing in, you know, just on a piano in general, I guess. Um, that means you're playing on all the black keys, mm, basically. Yeah. yeah, if you're piano, that's going to be tough uh, on the piano. So, although it's a slow movement, so he doesn't have to get into any acrobatic playing here. D major again comes in to evoke the spirit of the outer movements. This is something that Wilms does. With the exception of the D major section, the pianist plays almost exclusively on the black keys. Although, on the forte piano he's playing, if you look at the photograph, the um, the white keys on a piano are actually all black on this particular forte piano. Okay. And the, uh, the what we call the black keys are all painted white on this instrument so he's actually playing on the white on the black keys oh. which are white so <laughs> this movement has a shy lilting rhythm to it at the beginning 
reminiscent of Mozart's slow movements. Again, the piano comes in on an upbeat, which is rather surprising. He's he's coming in early, like he's uh, mm. he's that guest that's early to your party, and you're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> He leads scale-wise into his theme. Uh, the D major section comes at uh, 2 minutes and 11 seconds, and it sounds odd in this context. We're back to F sharp major after some harmonic wandering in the third minute. And I think we arrive at F sharp major at 3 minutes and 37 seconds when we hear the theme repeated with a brief digression into another key, which is back to D major briefly. Um, then modulate painstakingly back to F sharp major by 4 minutes and 30 seconds for the final cadence. Third movement, Rondo alla Polacca. Okay, so this is like uh, the Polish dance, I guess a mazurka or a polonaise. Maybe it's a polonaise. Um, when you see when you see alla Polacca, it means it's referencing referencing a Polish dance. So think of Chopin's, uh, you know, mm. polonaises and mazurkas. Those are all Polish dances. The Rondo theme starts without a pause and only a brief speeding up from the previous movement. It's got a tonic dominant rocking bass line and the usual amiable theme one gets in a rondo and uh, films is good at coming up with these amiable themes. I like the axis that the brass give the theme at the cadence of the rondo theme. At a minute and 16 seconds, we're into the first contrasting section. The rondo theme is back pretty quickly in the second minute and before it's finished, we take an unexpected detour that veers back to the rondo theme and its cadence. After quite a bit of decorative material after the cadence we get the second departure from the rondo theme at three minutes and 45 seconds it's stated then goes into a more severe dramatic minor key actually all three of these might be it might not just be decorative the first it might be three different sections here it goes into a more severe dramatic minor key we get back to the rondo theme and its digressions toward the end of the fifth minute this leads to a bit of a coda or a long digression from the material. Um, the final cadence is approached in elaborate fashion with much harmonic teasing. So this album is a nice discovery, and so is this composer. Um, Willems has a cheeky way with the harmony and his individual movements that make the listener wonder where the movement is going, while always knowing where it will end up, as though we're watching a movie with unexpected twists and digressions into unexpected material. So it's like you're watching a Western, and it does all these strange things that Westerns don't do, but you know there's going to be a gunfight and the hero's going to walk away at the end, right? Into the sunset. In fact, uh, films this music makes me feel like I'm with someone who's leading me somewhere, then gets distracted by something, like I said in the first uh, movement there, takes a wrong turn, wonders how to get out of the predicament he's gotten us into, and always miraculously succeeding, like he's some kind of water witch or something that can get back <laughs> to the road. And the whole while, you're worried yet interested at the things you're unexpectedly seeing. I don't like this type of person in real life, but in art, I <laughs> seek them out, <laughs> and I'm always happy to hear this. I'm kind of funny like this, like, you know, you think, oh, I really admire this music. I, want, I don't, but that doesn't mean I want to meet the person who made it. <laughs> Most of these people are completely nuts. I would just be happy just listening to their art, their music, and never meeting them in real life. <laughs> um, and I think I don't know what Vilms was like, but maybe I would like to have met him. Brautigam has a. Uh, we talking about the uh, soloist uh, Ronald Brautigam has a light touch on the forte piano and an athletic technique. Uh, both soloists and orchestra keep the energy up for the entirety of this 82-minute album. It's going to be exhausting to listen to. Recommended, sure to lift the spirits. If you listen closely, it'll even entertain you in a story-like way. If you're one of these people who likes to go to cities like Rome and just without a map and just start walking and just get lost and find your way back, this is the music for you, I'd say. 
Yeah, I thought these are all really attractive pieces. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're in this period idiom, so in general, they're not too surprising, but they have enough unique charm and these interesting harmonic diversions and variations of keys that catch and keep your ear uh, right. with little surprises. The performances are enthusiastic and they bring out that charm. And I think like we felt with Renitsky, these are familiar yet new in a lot of ways. So it's kind of Renitsky's like Renitsky's probably a good comparison, yeah, actually. It's yeah. kind of like discovering something that we should have known about, but you know, history has passed by. So that right. makes it kind of charming and entertaining to find something, you know, that's both familiar and new. So I really hope we get to hear more in the volume two and maybe some more of his music. He did a lot of chamber music as well. Yeah, so it'd be so, interesting to hear, you know, his approach in some different settings too. Yeah, so I'd recommend it. It's an interesting listen. Yeah, his whole problem was that he, he got stuck in Holland where yeah. it just wasn't a musical <laughs> center. So his music didn't really travel. It's it's a shame for him, but it's mm. good. He was uh, he really was someone who uh, could have been a big player. I think he had some interesting ideas. All right, on to our next piano album, and that that king of classical pianists, Franz Liszt. Okay, mm. we hear his uh, first and second piano concertos, which are the only two he wrote. He only wrote two, and his piano sonata, which is uh, a big calling card for uh, would be professional pianists. It's a very big, long work, and it has brought many pianists to their to their knees, wishing they hadn't <laughs> tried to uh, play this piece. No such uh, problem for our uh, soloist here, Alexander Ullman, a very young p British pianist, who is the winner of the 2017 International Franz Liszt Piano Competition in Utrecht. Hmm. He's 31 years old, so so he's yeah he's still pretty young. But he's, he's very mature sounding, too. I mean, mm. it really feels like he's got a real handle on this music. For the concertos, we also hear the BBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by Andrew Litton, mm. uh, who uh, has conducted a lot of um, my favorite pianists, especially Stephen Huff, uh, very often. So I'm pretty used to hearing his, uh, his interpretations. The label here is Rubicon, which is a British-based label owned by, I guess, Cheron... C-H-E-I-R-O-N, Cheron Music Group, which is an American company. So go figure. <laughs> I don't understand how these, <laughs> how these things work. Anyway, you're under the umbrella of this bigger company. and Anyway, first we hear... Yeah, I've never really been a big fan of Liszt's piano concerti, but I do like his uh, solo piano works a lot. But anyway, this made a really... Uh, hearing them by different pianists kind of gives you a different take on them. And I was really sort of drawn to these. This um, mm. pianist has a, a way with list and it's uh, sort of unique. So this is something I haven't really heard before. First movement, Allegro Maestoso, Tempo Giusto. It has a romantic opening and an impressively strong entry by Ullmann right at the beginning. We hear some technique almost right away at the 43 second mark. And Ullmann has a light as a feather sound on scales. And very strong octaves, too, though not like barnstorming strong. Okay, and I'm going to say something about that later. Uh, gorgeous phrasing, too, in the theme after a minute and ten seconds. He's got his own individual take on this piece and shows a lot of variety and dynamics in his phrases. Like, he can, mm -hmm. he really gets into these real shadings of, you know, forte and, you know, fortissimo and something in between that's really amazing. 
taking a phrase at full volume, then it's repeat in a gossamer-like tone. Um, this word gossamer, which kind of evokes the uh, fineness of a spider's web, um, so it's really, really fine, like you can't even see it, you know, unless you, mm. you kind of turn the right way. Um, I'm going to use this word a lot with this pianist playing. He gets this really beautiful, very light tone, even in these crazily fast passages. He's, he manages to get every note on at the same sort of volume level. And it takes a lot of strength to be able to play that quietly, that fast, because the, uh, the key has to go down. Piano keys are pretty mm. heavy. And the the hammer just has to just lightly tap the string to get that sound. So in order to do that, it takes enormous control. It was really impressive. It's clear he really loves this music, too. Um, judging by the affectionate way, he caresses his melodies out of the piano. A stormy section interrupts at about 3 minutes and 45 seconds, and we get impressive octaves from Ullman in this section. Uh, the movement ends with the lightest touch, and just I'm, I'm knocked out by the technique. Second movement, we have quasi adagio. We have rather ominous cellos starting this movement out. Then we get a light romantic string melody, which Ullmann matches with his feather-light tone. Wow, <laughs> this is a real wow, the whole sound of this. His entry is barely audible and seems to crescendo into being from nothing. You know, it just sort of quietly comes into being. He leaves a lot of pregnant pauses between phrases when he's playing solo. Uh, the movement gets dramatic by the middle, and we hear some dramatically expressive passage work from Ullmann, who immediately lightens his tone toward the end for the passage leading to the end of the movement. His ability to do this and play this lightly is seductive to the ear. There's an impressive uh, ralentando on the trill he's playing at movement's end. So he's playing this quick trill, and it kind of slows down to end the movement. Very romantic sounding and very seductive as well. Third movement, Allegretto Vivace, going to Allegro Animato. Solo piano starts this movement with a broken up yet sprightly theme. A gorgeous sense of line through all the appoggiaturas in the melody. Ullmann keeps the movement leaping throughout with his well-sprung piano lines. In the middle, at about 2 minutes and 14 seconds, we hear the opening melody appear as something dark and ominous, and the piano strings it out into octave scales. The melody gets a big statement by the orchestra at three minutes, and the orchestra does a lot to challenge the volume of the pianist at the end of this movement. And the pianist holds his own. The fourth movement, Allegro Marziale Animato. Marziale means like martial or warlike or like a march, an army marching. There's no real pause between the previous movement and this, but a total change of feeling to a more triumphant theme in the orchestra, which suddenly darkens 30 seconds in. A dancing melody with some impressive supporting harmony and technique from the pianist appears after one minute. And I'm impressed with the pouring, liquid nature of Ullman's lines. They flow effortlessly. One is always aware of where one is in the movement and the line. So beautifully does he pace this piece. This is a great performance. Big triumphant ending by the orchestra. Now we're up to the mighty solo, Piano Sonata in B minor. And uh, let's uh, have a look at this. This is uh, a 30-minute sonata that has, uh, it's all one movement, but on this recording, it's divided into five tracks. It's, it's really a big one-movement, giant sonata form piece. This starts with uh, three very famous uh, opening octaves. They're very quiet, as you might expect from uh, this player, um, as we heard in the piano concerto. They are very quietly taken. You, you might not realize the piece has started if your stereo is too low. 
Uh, there's a sudden increase in volume at around the 43 second mark. And we start hearing a melody come into being. Lots of sequencing at the beginning. So you'll hear like one theme going up into different registers. Uh, at the beginning of the first minute to extend the theme outward. By a minute and 32 seconds, we get a full theme. And it's taken very fast, but clearly and impressively articulated. I should mention, this is a very clear recording with detail registering well. The octave figuration and repeated notes at 2 minutes and 45 seconds in the mid-range are well-balanced and even. We get to the second highly romantic theme at 3 minutes and 14 seconds. This is sort of soliloquy for the piano that follows this theme. And lasts until about the fifth minute, when the music becomes more agitated, yet loses its energy and morphs into a romantic music box type melody at 5 minutes and 50 seconds. All very lightly taken with Ullman's gossamer touch, there's that word again, a word that seems invented to describe his quieter playing. Really nice separation of the bass mid-range melody from the right-hand figuration and the bass notes at the lower end in the sixth minute. This is an example of Liszt's three hands effect like like he's he's got he's playing three different things with two hands so it kind of sounds like he has three hands and it's, it's well realized here at the very end of track five going into track six this is the second part allegretto energico con prima we explode with a little restraint into this section which features high speed figuration requiring big technique oldman plays on the quiet side beautifully and his fortissimi don't quite explode. Now, this is also true. I was gonna—I mentioned this earlier that I was going to talk about this later when I was talking about the piano concerto. Uh, they register well enough, though, all of a piece with the music. Okay. Now, a lot of pianists, when they play these octaves, they just really just barnstorm on the piano. Just It's, it's almost like... Uh, they, they want the piano to break or something. It's done something wrong to them. <laughs> I sort of parody in this my in my book, Extreme Music. But <laughs> but um, Ullman doesn't do that. He's, he's always very musical, and he plays loudly, but not showily. You know what I mean? Although his playing winds up being showy just because of the music he's playing. But he's, very, he's always serving the music here, and the, uh, the tone never really quite explodes out of the speakers. Now... I liked this. Now it's gonna. It depends on you, listener. If you really want that big, powerful, fortissimo sound, you got you got to look for another pianist because this this pianist kind of is a little more on the quiet side with his fortissimi. I wanted to say here and other places, I got a sense that he has some special kind of ability with his playing, where he conveys a sense of weight rather mm -hmm. than volume. Ah, so yeah. I noticed the same thing well said, as yeah. you compared to other versions. He can get this heaviness in his hand that transfers into the tone that comes out. It's not like say loud or you know fortissimo. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a a driving tone that gives this weighted effect mm -hmm. to it that impressed me a lot. I wrote that a couple of times. You know, a sense of weight rather than volume, and. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with that. I don't know exactly how it's done or why it's yeah. different, but that's you know what I was uh, sensing yeah. from listening to this. Yeah, It makes you think of the piece differently, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't really think of it as a showpiece as much as, you know, yeah. other pianists make you think of it. Yeah. This is probably why he won the uh Could be. Yeah, it's very he different. Newer, Unique. It's different. Yeah. At 1 minute and 50 seconds, we hear a theme from the first section in the previous track, 
come back and assert itself dramatically. There are crashing chords at 2 minutes 50 seconds that Ullman still manages to get some beautiful tone out of. All of his fortissimi are deliberate and measured, like Russ said, weighted, you said, I think? Weighty or, yeah. Weighty. Something, yeah. yeah. He has a range of volume that he's going to stay within to ensure everything stays balanced, something that makes this performance very musical and enjoyably listenable. Okay, on to uh, the, this is uh, track seven, I think. Am I doing this right? Okay, yeah, track seven. Uh, Andante Sostenuto starts very quietly with stretched out melody, Ullman applying his gossamer-like touch to the opening material. By the second minute, we've got a memorial, meaning like rock-like <laughs> romantic theme. <laughs> Boldly played, it means it sounds like st- like a statue, like it, it's not going to be bent or anything. Um, romantic theme, boldly played with controlled fortissimi. There you go. That I, I kind of described your weight weight mm. as a controlled fortissimi. That's the what I said. <laughs> yeah. Same idea. Anyway, lots of I, I mean the same thing. Let's say mm-hmm. lots of highly controlled romantic playing follows, complete with generously expressive though suitably subtle. Rubato. Let me tell you, if this guy was in the drawing room that uh, Liszt and Chopin played in, all the ladies would have swooned for this sound, <laughs> man. I imagine Chopin may have sounded like this, and he'd probably be really good in Chopin's music. Mm. Because Chopin played, again, they say, with a very quiet tone, and I'd be curious to hear him mm. play that, because he'd get this really light feel. It would be amazing. At five minutes and five seconds, Ullmann is showing off his featherlight tone again in Pianissimi Passages. At 6 minutes 54 seconds, we hear the opening sequence of three repeated notes again, suggesting a recapitulation, but instead we lead into a fugue. And that's the next track, track 8. Allegro Energico Fugue. The fugue is based on the opening theme, but is rather bent out of shape, and the staccato motoric theme, like motor-like, that follows is used as a fugue subject. This is a pretty manic fugue. It's also, this is where most pianists really break down (laughs) in their performances. Fugues are hard to play as it is. And this one, oh boy, it's it's pretty manic. You got to keep that uh, tempo up. The fugue crescendos to something big by the end, then breaks up until we hear the opening notes again. This is uh, track nine. Recapitulation. List writes, accentuato il canto. Okay, meaning accenting the, the melody. Or the song-like nature. Here we get the romantic second themes recapitulation. Ullman's romantic credentials are on full display here. Generous but subtly taken rubato is applied to the melodic line, as well as what seems by now to be Ullman's trademark light touch. By 2 minutes and 45 seconds, we're into some adventurous figuration in octaves. This is another big dangerous part for pianists. Uh, the big generous romantic theme we heard in the exposition is repeated at 3 minutes and 40 seconds, followed by a pregnant pause, which leads into the quiet coda in track 10. We head to a final cadence at a minute and 12 seconds, but it's interrupted by a repeating note we heard earlier, rather throwing up a harmonic obstacle to the final cadence. At 2 minutes and 4 seconds, we reach a tonic chord that's repeated three times, but a line continues on after that resting place. A new balance has to be found, and heavenly high chords, gorgeously played by Ullman, are heard, providing that resolution. Okay, well, I've heard this piece many times in my life. Uh, Every great pianist plays it. Ullman manages to show a lot of restraint in this work, a quality we don't associate with Liszt, really. (laughs) Um, But this work, it it really serves this work, because I think it's a a well-written piece. 
In doing so, he produces an immaculate interpretation with all details registering clearly. Now, last year we heard uh, Benjamin Grovener play this, and that mm -hmm. recording had some real magic on it. We were really impressed by that. Uh, he, he showed a bit of restraint as well, but I guess he had like less of it. His fortissima um, registered strongly. This is a very different performance mm -hmm. than that, and it's a, an example of... Um, you know, the Brahms um, story about he heard some string quartet play one of his works. He said, oh, your your uh, interpretation is very good. Last week I heard this other string quartet play it. They, they Their interpretation was very good too. Okay, <laughs> They were both different. <laughs> right. So um, that's sort of what we have here between Gravener and Ullmann. They're, they're different sounding interpretations, but both are really interesting mm. and give you sort of a different impression of the work. So yeah, give it, I would say absolutely hear this if you're interested in this repertoire or in the piano in general. Okay, so we're on to the second piano concerto, which is in A major, which is heavily Wagner-oriented. Okay, right away, first movement, Adagio Sostenuto Asai. It starts entirely with winds playing an almost chorale-like theme. The clarinet gets a solo line into the piano's quiet entry. The piano is playing arpeggios with accompaniment that are building expectations to something coming up. Very Wagnerian. At a minute and 42 seconds, we get a further extension toward that theme. Um, there's a lot of Wagnerian tonal teasing here, like we get in the opera Tristan und Isolde. Remember, Wagner and Liszt were actually pretty close. Um, I think Liszt's daughter married Wagner, <laughs> his daughter Cosima. Uh, a lot of the teasing isn't really on the piano so far. Ullman is excellent at conveying the harmonic tension, and we get his gossamer tone on the arpeggios after 2 minutes and 50 seconds. This leads to this kind of humpy theme in the bass, featuring rolled chords after 3 minutes and 50 seconds, which the low strings pick up at 4 minutes and 20 second or so, seconds or so. There's a Wagnerian like dwarves digging for the Rheingold quality to this theme. It kind of has that... It's not the the Wagner one comes to mind right away, but this one's a little different than that. But it has the same sort of people working quality to it. Uh, big tension is built up at the end of this track, and then we go into track 12, which is still the first movement, Allegro Agitato Asai. It's a different section. Here we get a scurrying theme with some impressive technique. At 36 seconds, we hear a very Ring of the Nibelungs type theme sounding like an offshoot of the making of the ring and a minute and 37 seconds slow romantic arpeggios lead us to a pause before the second movement allegro moderato there's a cello solo in this played by susan monks by the way let's give her credit uh, we melt into this masked string melody highly romantic even syrupy i guess this would count for the slow movement in this work at a minute and 11 seconds there's a long pause after the piano's solo's quiet figure then a cello comes in, accompanied by piano arpeggios, and plays a sad romantic theme. The piano picks it up solo after a minute and 50 seconds or so, and gives it harmonic support. The cello theme continues, very Wagnerian, winds take over amid a flurry of piano figuration, all unobtrusively taken. The orchestral theme is the main focus, but of course one cannot help but listen to the piano in the background. Uh, we lead into the third movement. Track 14, Allegro de Ciso. This is the marching theme that I earlier called the Dwarves Making the Ring theme. It's got that quality to it, if a different rhythm and bounce. Crisis is reached at a minute and 44 seconds with the repeated fortissimo chords in the orchestra. Lots of tension here. The rest of this track is a harmonic build-up too. 
Track 15, which is still the third movement. Marziale un poco meno allegro. The grand theme we hear here is a triumphal march quality, lots of release of tension, and fortissimo. After the theme, at 40 seconds, there's rushing piano figuration, leading to a Schumann-esque set of arpeggios, reminiscent of the Fantasies' third movement. Schumann was trying to evoke the Fata Morgana illusion in his uh, piano fantasy in the third movement, and uh, Liszt is kind of picking that up here, too, which is kind of surprising. I'm kind of wondering why. I don't think this sounds Wagnerian at all. It sounds more Schumann-esque. After a pause, at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, we hear a slower theme from earlier on. From here, there's a long build to movement 4, track 16, Allegro Animato. This is a really cheerful ending. Nothing Wagnerian or Schumann-esque <laughs> about it at all. <laughs> Although maybe Schumann, I don't know. You know, the uh, Carnival or something, which I've always found charming. I like this. We hear rushing material that evolves into something more celebratory and formal in the first minute. And the piece ends on a big cadence. This fourth movement really sounds... <laughs> like it came out of nowhere. I really don't know. It's not of a piece. I should mention, I don't really know much about the uh, second piano concerto, but I'm, I'm going by what I'm hearing. I didn't actually do research into like what Liszt's inspiration was for it. I'm just kind of comparing it to other music I've heard. So anyway, that's the end of the album. And we'll say Ullmann has made uh, his name playing Liszt so far, and his technique is immaculate to the point where he can play with the lightest tone in the most virtuosic passages. I find this to be amazing. His barnstorming fortissimi aren't quite barnstorming. He rather tones them down to serve the music. That's fine. He's not a showy pianist by nature, yet he's playing showy music here, and the virtuosity can't help but come across. He's got my ear. I'm interested in hearing more from him. Andrew Lytton and the BBC Symphony Orchestra provide excellent accompaniment as Lytton-led orchestras have for many favorite concerto programs that I love, which I mentioned before. An excellent introduction to this pianist, what he can do, and what he may be about musically. Absolutely, give this a listen if you like piano playing. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. I said it's controlled but dynamic and sensitive performances. The nuances and especially the light touch really stand out. It's not a histrionic list like other performers often kind of take license with to, you know, sort of... Um, Especially Russian ones. Yeah, just... They like to play really loud. Yeah. Project. The yeah. thing that impressed me most about his playing is, other than, you know, the light and fleetness of the soft passages, is that sense of weight rather than volume that's really impressive with the sort of force he can command without getting very loud. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and it gave me a different kind of take on these pieces compared to what we heard last year when we heard the same pieces. So it's a different list and well worth hearing. And the recording is very clear. Orchestral balance is great. Definitely one to check out for all piano fans. And then another one that's going to be probably only for piano fans um, is uh, an album called Germaine Taillefer, uh, Her Piano Works Revived 1. So this is going to be first in a series. Germaine Taillefer, 1892 to 1983, so she lived for a lot of the 20th century. I was going to feature this on a program of women composers, but we don't seem to be doing that, so I'm going to start. I have too many albums by women composers now, so I'm just going to start sprinkling them liberally throughout our hmm. our, our podcasts. Anyway, the pianist here is Nicolas Horvath. He was born in Monaco, and he's ethnically French and is 45 years old. The label is Grand Piano. 
uh, a label dedicated to the exploration of undiscovered piano repertoire, which was launched in 2012. And I was trying to get a location for them, but it there, there is none that's listed anywhere. They're distributed by Naxos Records in most of the world, but not everywhere. Okay. There's an email address only. I guess I could have asked them, but <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Now, Germaine Taillefer, I remember her. I've heard this name since I first started listening to classical music because I was interested in classical music history. And she comes up because she was one of the group of composers known as Les Six in France. And they lived and worked in Montparnasse. And the other members were Georges Auric, who people might know as a film, mostly a film composer. He's, mo he's best known for his film music. Louis Duré, who's completely forgotten today. And I've never heard any of his music. And uh, maybe he's ready for rediscovery. And the other three are all famous. Arthur Honegger, who was Swiss, mm -hmm. the only non-French member of the group. Darius Miot who everybody knows, and the most famous of the group, Francis Poulenc. Their music had nothing in common. They just knew each other and often hung out together in Montparnasse. Their music was often programmed together in odd venues there, sort of like the the serial, the 12-tone composers. Mm -hmm. or, you know, Schoenberg and his, his pals used to just kind of put on their own programs in odd places when they couldn't get into the concert halls. So I was always interested in her because she was the only woman in this group, and I was kind of uh, interested in hearing her music. But it was impossible to hear, much like Louis Duret's. We can't, <laughs> no one's ever recorded him either. And I've always wanted to hear, because I was curious, because if it sounded anything like Poulenc, uh, Honegger, and Millot, I was interested in it. I like French music in general, French classical music. She had kind of uh, an interesting life. Her actual last name is uh, Taifes, not Taifer. She changed her name to spite her father who wouldn't support her music lessons. <laughs> Man! <laughs> <laughs> wow. She studied piano with her mother in her earliest days, then eventually went to the Paris Conservatory. All right, so her music can be classified as combining neoclassicism with a ready wit and energy. And yeah, this is a lot like... It doesn't sound like Poulenc or Millot, but they had that quality too. So mm -hmm. if you want to kind of think of what you're going to hear, you can think of Poulenc or Millot in their more spirited modes let's say okay especially Mio who's, whose music always seems really spirited Poulin could be serious okay so this album programs uh, Taifer's piano works in the order they were written and feature works from her student days up to 1937 keep in mind uh, she died in 1983 so there's probably still a lot more piano music to come right. <laughs> after mm -hmm. this album and this looks like it's going to be a complete series and though I'm probably not going to talk about any of the other uh you know, recordings on it. I'm probably going to have to hear all of these because I'm just interested in her. Um, she would live another 46 years. <laughs> so there probably, it's probably a lot more and even more mature piano music to come. This really starts at the beginning. The first track is Exercice d'Harmonie, which was written during her student days. And it's a Wagnerian piece. That's pretty nice. I'm going to, now I want to mention, what are there, like 55 <laughs> tracks on this album? <laughs> Yep. Um, we could skip a good 30 of them because they're, I'll get to it when we get there. I'll explain why. But uh, I'm going to give them just a brief thumbnail sketch of these. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. Most of these pieces are really short. They're about a minute or two minutes long, except for one. The second track is an impromptu, conventional figuration. Harmonic changes are unconventional and plentiful. At this point already, I'm starting to detect a bit of like mechanicalness in Horvath's playing. It could flow more, let's say. He's he's serving the music well. 
but I feel like it could get a little bit more uh, uh, fluidity out of the melodies and stuff. It's it, which is in the in the music. Horvath as a pianist is good in the faster figuration, but he kind of keeps to a stricter tempo and the slower one. I feel like he could do something to really make that flow more. This work is two minutes eleven seconds long. Covers a lot of harmonic territory. It also sounds eminently playable for people who want to, uh, hmm. pianists out there who might want to play a new piece. Romance, written in 1913 when she was still a student, has a heavy lilt to it. There's a bit of heaviness in Horvath's touch. He's got a good sense of clarity between the right and left-hand lines. That's okay. Um, this is kind of an example of, he's playing this music that has no tradition of playing it yet, so he's the first, really, to, to put a lot of these on record, probably... A lot of them. I don't know of any uh, recordings of uh, Typhaeus music. Yeah, he's, uh, I guess, doing what he can here. Uh, fourth track, uh, Patrovit, has a surprise ending and has like a Poulenc-type wit to it. The Pastoral in D first appeared in Le Six's only group publication, Album des Six. It's called the Pastoral, but there's nothing rustic about it. It kind of sounds like heavy snow falling to me. Um, it could be more subtle. I'm not, I don't want to complain about Horvath's playing. Again, there's no template for this. He's not in. He's not really a top-ranked pianist, but he's very good. Okay, and he's. I think he serves this music well enough for now. I think it'll inspire other pianists to take it up. Uh, the Fandango uh, is next. Um, is kind of a banal work, but intentionally so. It's lively and dancey. It's very repetitive. Ends on a rallentando. Track seven, homage a Debussy. Uh, probably written for a project that Jean Cocteau had in 1920 for Le Six to compose a WC tribute, and this is the only surviving piece from that. There are a lot of nice harmonic changes in this. A lot of harmony is packed into this brief piece. And the eighth track, Très Vite, complex rhythmic interplay, fast tempo, lively spirits. Sounds hard to play, but fun too, so it might be worth learning. It's freeing, could be joyous with more subtle shaping of the lines by the pianist. Uh, cheerful and dancey, lots of interesting shifts in rhythm despite a short time. Okay, tracks 9 to 32 are a set of, um, <laughs> of ancient airs and dances like from the Baroque era into the Classical era that Typhaer edited um, for pianists to play. And uh, this is going to be a complete survey of Typhaer's music. So Horvath has included these here as well. <laughs> They were like about a minute long, and they're not. It's not her music. I'm not gonna really comment on them. The the one issue I had with this though is in track nine. This album is 80 minutes long, so it takes like uh, up the entire CD. And this particular track, which isn't the first track uh, by Luli, the album launches right into it with very little space between tracks, and it's not even really Typhaeus music. Hmm. So it's a little confusing unless you're actually keeping your eye on the. Uh, you know, on the track marker on your uh, CD player. or Okay. Uh, it's a new section of the program. We go through a lot of these old works and notable for their clarity. They sound good on the piano. Some of them are really, really short. This is going to be a complete edition. We could have, uh, couldn't these have been broken up a bit more? <laughs> I think or maybe over different volumes of the CD. Um, they act as a second act to this program, but it's music that's not composed by Typhaer. And it goes on for a very long, well, not very long, 15 minutes of the program. Okay, anyway, track 33 is the biggest piece on this album, Sous le Rempart d'Athènes, which is incidental music for a philosophical dialogue by the writer Paul Claudel. And this is a sudden change in harmony and figuration from the previous. This is a 15-minute piece. Actually, it's almost a 16-minute piece. 
It's the only really big piece on this album. It starts with trilling lines and a modal accompaniment with chords. There's an odd tambora type buzzing in the upper end of the piano during the tremolos in the fifth minute. The tambora is the instrument that you always hear in the background of Indian ragas, <laughs> you know, keeping the harmonic uh, mm. limits of the uh, or the you know, the barriers of the piece. I, don't, I think that's the piano doing that. The entire piece seems to be constructed on these trills with drifting chords playing a modal line. A new episode starts at around 4 minutes and 30 seconds with repeating chords featuring an offbeat melody. It's pretty slow and mildly ominous. The trills come back at 6 minutes and 9 minutes and 29 seconds as a brief, warm Debussyan ebbing and flowing arpeggios. Then the trills are back. This sounds like it would be a real pain to play all these trills <laughs> for this long in this piece. I do get the impression that there's a lot more subtlety written into this piece than we're hearing. This is a good example of a piece that I'd like to hear like a, a top a top flight pianist play. Like someone, you know, like Stephen Hoff or even Nicholas Horvath, who knows, who plays French music. At 11 minutes, there's a cool creeping bass with little inter interruptions built in that set of the material in the right hand. A repeating chord is played afterwards with figuration around it. Then a churchy set of chords going in modal directions. The trills come back in the 12th minute, and this ends with those wonderful modal chords. Yeah, this with all these trills, you need subtlety in this piece that we didn't quite get here. But we do have a recording of it now, so that's a good thing. Track 34 is a Sicilian. There's a bit of a pause before this comes in. It's got a straightforward Sicilian rhythm, and I think Horvath takes this too slowly. It doesn't quite get its proper swinging motion going. It gets loud in the middle and crashy. I think there's more charm and warmth in this piece than we're hearing on this recording, so you can listen for yourself and decide. Pastoral in A-flat, track 35. This is in 5-8. It's a toccata-like skewed dance, and there's a bit of perpetual motion to this, and a nice harmonic filling in of harmony after the theme is heard. At 58 seconds, there are some harmonic disturbances, and we lose the motion as it morphs into something like 3-4, then 4-4. Uh, the material in the middle ends with a crash and then the bass end. Then the opening rhythm is back, this time with new harmony and counter-melodic material. It's an interesting piece. Pastoral in C, track 36, is written in 1929, so we're in 1929 now. Uh, in 3-8, uh, perpetual motion with pedal notes pinning the harmony. This starts like the previous pastoral, except without the skip in the rhythm. It's more rounded and warm. A new section starts at a minute and seven seconds, sounding like a trio section of a menuet movement in its thinner harmony. It's got some hiccups in the rhythm. At two minutes and 14 seconds, we hear the opening material again. Okay, tracks 37 to 44, Fleur de France. This is uh, a set of eight easy piano pieces. They have a simple folk-like quality, but don't reference any actual folk music. They're, they're pretty simple, they're dancey, they're satisfying, and Horvath plays these really well. So I'm going to kind of skip over them just to get going here. All right, track 45, Pastoral Inca, another perpetual motion piece. Um, little pause from the previous suite, so we're not really sure that it's over. Um, the harmony here is more dissonant, but only lightly slow. So this has a very different feel than the suite that preceded it. So it's a bit jarring after that. At 34 seconds, we get repeating bass note with chords and with a rising and falling theme over them. At 58 seconds, back to the quick dance-like melody. Then at a minute and 34 seconds or so, back to the repeating bass note. At 2 minutes and 4 seconds, there's some dissonant harmony over the odd rhythm. Then back to the opening theme with these dissonant harmonies intruding. 
a lot happens in the three minute and 10 second span of this quick piece. And this is something I like about this composer. She can squeeze a lot in, a lot of events, musical events mm. into like a very short space. Track 46, Pastoral Amazon is rhythm driven. It's in 5-4 and that gives this arpeggiated opening an odd and appealing feel. Track 47, Bersuz, which is a lullaby. But this is kind of a, it says in the notes, it's a caricature cradle song whose increasing chromaticism reflects the increasing irritation and impatience of the parent. <laughs> I didn't really get that too much. It's It starts out appealingly enough with a rocking back and forth motion to the rhythm. And by the first minute, we're getting some more disturbing sounds that shouldn't be in a lullaby, but they're hardly harsh. Uh, the chromaticism to my ear makes it sound like the baby is being put to sleep by being made to think of difficult abstract math problems. <laughs> that's, the, that's the image I got. There's a really odd chord just before the second minute. Okay, tracks 48 to 52, Suite dans le style Louis XV. This was incidental music for a play called Madame Cannes by Jean Sarmont. Four of these pieces were originally for the harpsichord, and a fifth was added in 1950 when the play was restaged. These are all pretty charming. They're kind of Baroque-like, and they are by Taifer, so it kind of it's probably an outcome of her um, editing of all those Baroque works. This, these are her own original compositions in that style, and they're pretty charming. They fall into the Baroque idiom. Track uh, 53, Marche Funèbre Comique. Okay. This is a, a funeral march, and she writes, uh, is it comical in the uh, parentheses with a, with a question mark at the end. This has tritone shifts, probably written for a film. It's brief, starts with a low piano note, like a tolling funeral bell. The material rises and ends on an odd, dissonant chord. Au Pavillon d'Alsace are the last two works on this. This was in, written in 1937, commissioned by the Paris International Exhibition of 1937, these two sections are part of a collective work that friends of hers also contributed to. Track 54, the first part, Moderato, starts with like a French overture. That rhythm dominates the piece. Dun, 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 the 16th note to the quarter note. Uh, maybe because of the piano, it actually seems to seep over into a slow, bluesy swing rhythm in the first minute. I really don't <laughs> think it, I wonder if that's just the pianist doing that. At a minute and 25 seconds, there are sweeping arpeggios. Then back to the opening and the end. Track 55 is the Allegro. It's sparkling, fast. Uh, the left hand is active throughout, propelling the work throughout. There's a contrasting middle section and a solid ending. Okay, so anyway, at the beginning of this um, podcast, I mentioned the uh, Vince Guaraldi Great Pumpkin album and how it's really just a bunch of musical cues. It's not really an album. This, I, I don't know that I'd call this like an... It's not really a program. It's really mm -hmm. um, all of her piano works from the first one up until when this particular program ends. And then the next uh, album that comes out will probably like pick up where this one left off. I would say this album is for people interested in Thai Fair's music and really for piano enthusiasts only. Because it, there's no real part of... Now, it's, it's acting as a catalog for this music. And that's going to be a good thing because you're going to be able to, if you're a pianist, you're going to be able to listen to all this and maybe pick out pieces that you like or you can maybe form a program around them. Now, part of the problem with this is if an ordinary listener is listening to this, they're not going to hear any kind of like organization of a program because there's something about that that kind of makes you zero in on the music more. If you place like a certain piece in a certain key after another piece and another key, 
you'll be more inclined to like it or it'll kind of appeal to you in a different way. But this is just really just the order she wrote these pieces in. So they're, And they're written for different occasions, They so it doesn't really um, go on. The CD is crammed full of short pieces. It's It's 83 minutes long. So it's a kind of album that someone like me is going to be interested in because I'm kind of like, I take a scholarly approach to music a lot. So it's interesting music, um, not exactly captivating in its performance, but it's there and that's what we need. We need to be able to hear it before we can get to like it. Um, it's played well enough. We're at a starting point with her music. The draw of recordings like this is that it's a musical discovery for people and I hope it'll draw other pianists to program it and perhaps do their own full albums of Ty Fair's music. The middle section containing Typhair's edits of earlier music for keyboard is really only of passing interest, but it's good to have it on a complete edition like this. I'm glad it's not being overlooked. I wanted to talk about this album to let people know that there's an album of Typhair's music, piano music out there, and there's more to come, so there's apparently a lot of it. So just be aware this pianist project exists. I'm not going to recommend this to just your casual classical music listener, just to piano fans only maybe look at it as a little um what do they call those things on dvds like a i don't know a cupcake or whatever (laughs) (laughs) no there's a name for like these uh hidden bonus things okay so that's that's for you piano fans give it a listen yeah i thought the main thing that's hard on this one is the programming and all those short pieces so your attention is broken up uh through you know the long stretch there that said the longer sweet works i thought were kind of interesting she has an interesting sense of uh, harmonic kind of techniques and development that i thought was kind of interesting i'd like to hear more i'd be interested to see because i this is my first listen to her works so if she's written any more longer format works uh that i could focus on in a sort of more concentrated program i'd be interested to hear that yeah. and uh, see what I think other we'll be kind hearing of those in the future volumes yeah yeah so i like the sweets and uh the longer piece was kind of interesting earlier in the program as well give me a little bit more to uh focus on the development so yeah i guess as a historical documentation of her kind of catalog chronologically you know, this uh, accomplishes something as something to sit down and listen to from start to end. Uh, yeah. It's a bit difficult. And it's a bit of a rough go. Yeah. yeah, it took me a few sittings to get through this, really, because I couldn't really, you know, if you're listening to a pro something that's, in, you know, kind of programmed to give a certain effect, you can hear like a whole 80 minute program without stopping and you don't yeah. notice. But this was like, there was really no rhyme or reason to the way these, well, there was a reason. It was like in the yeah. order she composed them, but there was no real, you know, logic to the actual right. music itself i'd almost like to see if if it was in a cd set like those short pieces sort of on a different cd right. and then the suites kind of put more together and then it might be easier to listen to that way some of these had a lot of interesting harmonic stuff going yeah. on in them and a really great pianist can really make something of that you know they can kind of make it stand out more than horvath does okay and i'd like to hear someone take that you know, and play and play this because I think there's a lot of value in these works. Yeah, kind of interesting use of dissonances with dreamy melodies at the same time. Mm-hmm. Some moody but entertaining kind of passages in uh, some of the later works there too. Yeah, so maybe we'll see what's on volume two and pick it up from there. Anyway, new composer there, and if, also if you're one of these people, I know we have at least one listener. Um, who's really interested in women composers. And this is one that's I think is worth discovering. Okay, so you can 
listen to it for that too. Okay, on to the jazz side of the program. And it's still piano. Staying with all piano. Three very different yeah. recordings tonight. Mm. All something unique in their own way. I'm going to start out with probably the most traditional one. And a group of young musicians here. We've got a recording called Let's Call This by Spencer's wife, Bobby Weens and Seth Lewis. This is on, I guess, their own little label, ZWL Productions. Came out at the end of July, Piano Trio. Zweifel is a player who started at a young age, uh, growing up in Fort Collins, Colorado. And then uh, he was uh, inspired by great area players, uh, Mark Sloniker, Ben Markley. And he formed his own first jazz quartet at the age of 16. Wow. And he's just uh, graduated in 2019 with a degree in jazz studies from University of Northern Colorado. He won Best Pop Rock Soloist in 2018 Downbeat Magazine Student Awards. And this information may be a couple years old. So it said he was pursuing a master's in jazz studies at William Patterson University, maybe finished by now, where he has studied with Bill Charlap, Aaron Deal, and Jeffrey Keyes are all fine pianists. And uh, he's had good teachers. And that shows here with this recording that's featuring... The program was what caught my ear along with the stylistic playing. Uh, We've got a nice combination of originals, a couple standards, and then some interesting other choices by uh, jazz musicians here. So let's take a look at this recording. Wazwaifo's on piano, Seth Lewis is bass, Bobby Weens is on drums. We're going to start out with the standard, Sammy Fain, That Old Feeling. This should be a familiar melody to jazz fans going to start out with a bass ostinato. kind of starts with a vamp and a drum roll that signals Zweifel to join in with his left hand for a couple rounds before breaking off to add some percussive chords on top. They get into the famous melody with a nice stop time arrangement on the A section of it. And then on the next section, they change it up with left hand piano chords and bass locked in for backing. Uh, After a run through the melody, they return to the vamp and the chiming chords as an intro to a piano solo from Zweifel. He has a really good swing feel in his playing, mixes up the rhythms with triplet double-time figures while still leaving tasty spaces in there. Uh, They vamp it again into a melodic bass solo from Lewis with a nice woody sound, great bass tone. Zweifel then trades fours going around with Weens on drums. They go around the vamp section again before a final run through the melody and finish it off with that vamp and some final percussive chimes. It's a classy, tasteful arrangement of a good old standard. We get another standard, a little bit less common, by Bob Hames. They say it's spring. This one has a little bass intro with syncopated intervals. Zweifel leads in with some pretty chords and plays the melody with a nice sense of touch and soft dynamics. They add a little stop time for variety on the way through the melody. Zweifel's up again first for a solo, starting from a light and swinging break. He keeps it flowing with little ornaments and runs, working into some more chiming chords and phrases that build up on each other. Then Lewis gets a bass solo, nice varied rhythms in there and good accents on his phrases before they get to a final run through the melody to an ending of chords and tinkling of the high keys from Zweifel. We're going to get to an original here from the drummer Bobby Weens, Fiesta de Baile. 
It's a slow ostinato bass, and Weens adds a clicky Latin drum beat. Zweifel comes in with some syncopated chords and a funky melody line. It has a cool, unexpected modulation up a half step. They're in kind of E flat minor, goes up to E minor before it returns. It's a nice little change. Uh, then Zweifel solos, first getting to show off some more of his funky side on this tune, mixing in bluesy riffs, percussive chords, and some harmonic excursions on the way. Lewis gets a bass solo and digs in with rhythmic lines while Weens mixes up the rhythms nicely underneath. They return to the melody and Zweifel keeps percussive chords going while Weens gets to turn it up on the drums below, showcasing some nice tom and cymbal work to a weighty finish with big chords from Zweifel. Now, another original by Seth Lewis, this time Not For Nothing. It's a really swinging tune, the heavy two-measure intro that gets lighter into the melody, uh, building up to the last phrase, which was that intro. Has a lot of fun breakups of the rhythms along the way, nicely accented by Weens. Zweifel solos with swinging figures and a more percussive touch. Lewis falls on a bass with a busier solo digging into the rhythms, and they take it around once more on the melody to a big final hit. We're going to get a Jimmy Heath tune, one of his originals you don't hear very often, we're, one we're for one. Of him, yeah. After a big opening chord hit, some rubato and rolling piano chord and bass play over light cymbals, Lewis starts on an ostinato bass line and Weens sketches around it with cymbals. Zweifel locks into it with some rhythmic chords and a nice Latin groove develops. Then Zweifel plays out the sparse melody that has a lot of colorful chords, changes to major and back to minor. Uh, they go around the Latin vamp again. Zweifel goes into a solo. Nice springy rhythms in this one in his lines. He chains together rhythmic figures into longer lines nicely, building up to percussive chords with Weens adding toms for accents. Lewis gets a bass solo, uh, making in both kind of rhythmic and melodic covering of a big range on the instrument. And they bring back the vamp into another round of the melody with a stretched out ending for some final piano runs and simple textures. Another nice uh, cover of a tune by Thad Jones, a great trumpeter and band leader. Kids are pretty people. Zweifel starts it with light and staccato intro with a little break for tight brushwork from Wayne's. They work through the relaxed and bluesy melody with little breaks and rhythmic accents very tastily. Lewis walks a bass line with a good little chug to it and Zweifel plays a solo that has nice distinct spaced out rising notes before getting into some faster runs. He finishes it neatly for Lewis to take over with the bass solo, has interesting dynamic contrast with syncopated rhythms, and then turns a little bit bluesy. Weens gets a very restrained and light brush drum solo that makes you kind of sit up in anticipation a bit. Then there's another run through the bluesy melody. They take it out with a little staccato piano outro that mirrors the intro. Track seven, the title track, Thelonious Monk's Let's call this a drum intro with a good pulse here. Lewis adds a throbbing interval bass line and Zweifel has fun with the melody, adding in some colorful monkish harmonies and disjointed phrases. It breaks into swing for a bit along the way, changing the rhythm up. Zweifel keeps his solo in character with the fun two-handed figures, bass and drums changing things up as he goes along. Uh, they vamp on a chord to start at the end of the drum solo for Wayne's, and then go around the melody uh, once more to a big finish with some final drum hits. We've got a really nice original from Zweifel, Who's Who. It's a nice swinging minor tune. Uh, the intro has 
two piano chords that alternate with an answering bass and left-hand piano line. The melody structure is cool with a relaxed strain that is followed with a syncopated falling figure into that bass line from the intro. Uh, the B section is more even and harder swinging. There's a nice long break after the melody into Zweifel's solo that builds up anticipation. Another nice swinging solo here with good touch on clear right-hand notes and a mix of percussive chords. Lewis has a springy drive in his bass solo here with snappy rhythmic figures. Oh, and once more around the melody with nice building piano chords to the end. It's a fun original tune. We're going to end up with Stevie Wonder's Creepin'. The drums kick into a relaxed and clicky groove with piano chords, and Zweifel tastefully underplays the melody here, focusing on touch and tone, making accented chords stand out. It's just a short run through at just over two minutes, but it's a nice atmospheric coda to end the recording. So I thought this was a fine and tasteful piano trio in the tradition of piano trios looking to the past, but with original ideas. Zweifel shows maturity and restraint. It keeps you listening, wanting to hear more. The interplay is tight and natural in the trio. And the choice of standards, covers of other jazz musicians' songs and their own well-crafted originals make an excellent program. Plus, their concept of style makes it all fit kind of seamlessly uh, into their own kind of sheen makes everything uh, cohesive, even the Stevie Wonder tune. So excellent solos all around, too. And let's hear more from these uh, young guys. I liked it a lot. Yeah, tasteful is a good word for this. I thought it was, all, it was immediately appealing. It was right from the first uh, notes. And uh, that appeal lasts all the way through the album. Traditional sounding, easy on the ear. The ideas keep the mind engaged. It's a relatively short album, but uh, I wanted to, and I wanted to hear more. You know, I kind of wish there were more tracks on this one. Um, also, I just want to say it's a shame it's not on CD. I hope they will release one. I would consider getting this actually. I liked it a lot. Yeah, really straight, really straightforward, but you know, mature and just really enjoyable. Yeah, you know, we always note in you know Bill Sharlop's playing that great sense of space, right? Especially on his one from last year, and uh, I think Swifle's got that kind of sense. He knows what not to play too which makes you know all of his lines more intriguing and it keeps you in anticipation in his solos. So, yeah, nice work, guys. Good to hear some See, more. Th- now, I want you to think about this. Like, knowing what not to play is uh, impressive enough, but it would be nice if people knew not what not to say, which people don't seem to know. <laughs> nobody, nobody seems to know that, even me sometimes, yeah. So, but you're even going to go into the level of knowing what not to play. That's like another level past yeah. knowing not what to say. Right. Know? Now, we're going to go from not... Knowing not what to play to not knowing what you're going to play on this next recording. And that's what's kind of unique about it. So we've got a duo, Hmm. Kevin Hayes on piano, Bill Stewart on drums. And this recording, which is kind of a unique thing, American Ballad on RGT Records. And this just came out August 1st, but it was recorded in 2015. And Hmm. has a little kind of interesting uh, setting to what's going on here. A little background first, Kevin Hayes, a New York-born pianist, and uh, when he was young, he played with Nick Brignola, a great baritone sax player from uh, upstate, my area. Also, yeah. uh, Benny Golson, Joshua Redman, Eddie Henderson. Uh, he did some duets with Brad Meldow as well. And his own trio has played together for around 15 years or so, including Bill Stewart, we hear here on drums, and Doug Weiss on bass. 
Uh, we've heard Hayes before on the podcast, episode 18, on the Smoke Sessions Records recording All Things Are. Uh, that was Kevin Hayes, Ben Street, and Billy Hart. And uh, Bill Stewart on drums here. We've heard episode 25, Magic of Now, on uh, Smoke Session Records with Oren Evans. And we just heard him a few weeks ago on the uh, Jackpot recording, Brian Charette and Corey mm. Weeds from episode 76. I that, yeah. yeah. And so this uh, duo recording here is uh, largely improvised music in the sense of <laughs> more than mm. jazz improvisation. They went into the studio, I guess, over a couple of days with just some ideas and played and saw what happened and captured it. And then it's set around for these years, and now we're going to get to hear it. Uh, so I read an interview where they talked about this. Uh, Kim and Hayes said, we gave ourselves a day in the studio. One of us would start with an idea, and then the other would jump in and respond in the moment. The tracks just grew organically from these jumping off points. And then the interviewer said, did anything unexpected happen? And he said, it was mostly unexpected. <laughs> uh, the thing that surprised me is how Bill and I connected on music that never existed before. So we're really getting to hear something uh, that we normally wouldn't get to hear with music very spontaneous, spontaneous compositions. Yeah. Right. So let's talk through it. We're going to start out with the first track called Nebula. This credited just to Stuart for the idea. Hey starts it out with an idea of three chords that he builds upon. Uh, Stuart adds a light cymbal touch and toms to get an eight-beat feeling rhythm added to that. Uh, Hayes keeps the chords going in his left hand and adds right-hand improvisations. He takes advantage of the harmonic freedom, no bass here, uh, venturing freely, but his melodic sense always brings things back in to resolve in this framework. Uh, when he gets more rhythmic, Stuart matches with hits, fills, and swelling volume. It kind of swells to a climax and then comes down in intensity, settling to the end. Most of the tunes are, the rest of them are just credit to both of them, Hayes Stewart, uh, mm -hmm. as is two, Walking Home. Uh, this one starts from a little low note pickup on the piano. Hayes sketches out a simple but appealing right-hand melody and a left-hand bass line that works into some occasional sparse chords. Stewart adds a swing feel just on cymbal to start out, adding light tom and snare textures as it progresses. It's fresh in its space and melodic direction. Hayes building up to improvisations on previous ideas and adding a little additional right-hand harmonization in spots. Just before three minutes, the melody phrase comes to a satisfying cadence that Stewart sinks to exactly, and Hayes has finished his statement. Stewart solos for a bit from there, keeping it light and sensitive to the touch, and Hayes returns with another melody line to the end that seems to congeal a lot of what he explored previously and have an interesting composed inevitability to it. <laughs> it really <laughs> sounds like, you know, it had to be that way. Track three is called The Good. Repeatedly anxious, rhythmic, and dissonant high register chords start this one out. Uh, Stewart adds a clicky beat with bass drum kicks and keeps it going when Hayes lays out for two four-measure sections. Hayes re-enters with a darting perpetual line that goes up and down the low to mid-range of the piano. He works it into a repeating rhythmic figure, adds right-hand chiming figures and other lines over it. Uh, the chasing line returns, breaking up a bit for Stewart to add some fills. And Hayes sticks on another repeating rhythmic riff, adding right-hand chords while Stewart mixes it up more. 
There are some more chasing lines that gel into a repeating figure. Stewart gets in some time to do uh, some work on tight hi-hat and muted cymbals, then more clicky ideas while Hayes keeps it repeating. They bring it down softer and Hayes keeps the tempo going while simplifying the riff until there's just nothing left of it. Hmm. And then it ends. There's a Chinese cymbal tap at the end. It's kind of an odd yeah. sounding thing. Yeah. I hear a lot of, um, there, there are always little like Debussy kind of influences on this too, especially in the first track right at the beginning. Hmm. But uh, the Chinese cymbal kind of always reminds me of Debussy too. That's what it, right. that's what it sounds like here. That's what that is. I don't know. I don't really know if that's what it is, but <laughs> judging by the sound. Track four is American Ballad, the title track. Single spaced out piano notes create some expectation as a yearning piano melody forms. Hayes keeps it rubato and Stewart adds cymbal textures. I like how Hayes has his left hand sometimes answering his right hand's phrases. It's short, under three minutes, uh, but some delicate beauty emerges in the tentative melody and sparse harmonies here. Track five, Salt. <laughs> Trickling figures over repeated high notes create an impression of running and dripping water. Hayes adds some additional lower notes and chords. Stewart adds light cymbals and drum textures underneath. Hayes varies the rhythmic feels and accents as it swells, Stewart adding cymbal washes. Then Hayes distills the piano down to a simpler line that gets a Spanish modal flavor to it with alternating chords. He runs chasing lines of modal ideas while Stuart works tom and cymbal ideas under it. It gets quite soft as Hayes rearranges and expands the harmonic ideas. Stuart adds some squeaking sounds into the percussion that start <laughs> to sound like metallic bird cries. Uh, no, it I... kind of puts you in a trance with the alternating chords. Uh, Hayes working soft staccato and rhythmic ideas down low underneath to a soft ending. I think this tune undergoes the most transformation over the the arc of uh, what happens in anything else yeah, here. Yeah, this, this one made the biggest impression on me. Um, it's called Salt, and I think that sprinkling piano figuration at the beginning is probably supposed to be salt, kind of. Could you be. Know, I heard it as liquid. I heard it as watery, too, and it mm. reminded me of, because it reminded me of Ravel's, like, watery, like, piano music, oh, like right, his... Right. Uh, Ondine from Scarborough or Unboxer Lucian from uh, Miwa. Hmm. You know, it's kind of, it, it kind of put me in the, it didn't sound like either of those, but it, it had that same kind of flow to it. You right. know what I mean? So right. uh, it, it put me in a watery mood as well. Hmm. The next one is called The Cold Man. And this one begins with teasing phrases from Hayes. Stuart adds light drum answers. Hayes goes stop and start, leaving Stuart to fill in the gaps. Around three minutes, a gospely groove forms with Hayes's chords, and Stewart cranks it up a bit. Hayes keeps the rhythmic chord idea going under some improvisation for a while, then lets Stewart take over for a bit, varying up the chord ideas. Stewart gets a lighter groove with a click going in it. It feels good, so they ride with that for a while before Hayes drops out, leaving Stewart to finish it up alone. Track 7's Openings. A uh, cymbal gong hits and flashes start this one out. Stewart continues on with cymbal work for about a minute and a half before Hayes joins in with isolated interjections of intervals. Uh, Stewart mixes in some toms as Hayes gets more chiming ideas of open intervals and icy piano figures. It gets sparse and the tension unwinds to a quiet ending. And the last track is uh, Archangel Annette Peacock, hmm. who is kind of a composer and electronic music pioneer and uh, also wife of jazz bassist Gary Peacock. So I guess this melody is 
uh, her composition, which Hayes plays kind of rubato and sparsely. Simple single note left hand accompaniment to it. Uh, he lets the notes ring out into the space. And Stewart enters with a cymbal roll, keeping light on skittering cymbal brushing. Now, Hayes connects the flow of his ideas more, and he gets more animated from there, but still keeping that rubato feel. After about three and a half minutes, Hayes turns to some heavier chordal ideas for a while, tying them back into a lighter exposition of the melody. It ebbs and flows, Hayes sensing when to add more to the swell, with Stuart underneath as well, following his lead, and then Hayes finishes it gently with some soft arpeggios. Yeah, this particular work, I just want to say, um, the piano line starts way high up, and throughout the piece, it keeps descending, descending, descending. So I'm guessing the archangel is coming, coming to down. earth from heaven. Yeah. Maybe he's, walk could, could maybe he's walking down the stairway to heaven. Who knows? Yeah, but it kind of sounds like it's sort of like a, a descending yeah. sort of scale all the way through. Anyway, this is uh, spontaneous music, but it's not at all difficult to listen to. There's a lot of space in the exploration, and I found myself drawn into the songs that developed kind of anticipating what would happen next. Hmm. And Hayes and Stewart have really great musical intuition from playing with each other so long. So they take the ideas in directions that have, you know, identifiable phrases, harmonic cadences, or at least return points. Hmm. So there's a destination to where things go. And also natural development to climaxes. So I'm really glad that they decided to release this because it's a nice insight into their creative processes and seeing how, you know, musical minds react to each other sort of on instinct and also in a complete kind of spontaneous uh, format. I think it's in interesting and enjoyable. Definitely all jazz musicians uh, should listen to this, but other people might enjoy it as well. Yeah, there's, you know, there's really a lot in this. Um, I was pretty amazed at how they, there are two instruments and they suggest uh, multiple types of rhythm and genre at the same time. You know, it's, mm. it, I'm thinking about, like, say, the Debussyan chords and a brief funky rhythm in the track Nebula, the first track. Mm -hmm. These things don't really seem to go together, yet there they are at the same time. Incidentally, I've often heard that in music you can do things like that you can introduce like you can have contrasting emotions or even multiple genres multiple rhythms at the same time whereas in other arts you really can't do that like in literature you'd have to write something and then maybe in the next line you could write a contrasting thing but they're right. not happening at the same time you just right, right. There's one after the other and i think they, they really draw that quality of music out in this album they provide a lot of variety on this uh really not completely straightforward album it's a real adventure i thought uh it didn't wear me out though i really enjoyed it yeah it's intriguing it was a rewarding excursion let's say yeah intriguing unique um you really had me um my mind working too i was kind of contemplating a lot of things when i was listening to this even about the music itself very interesting yeah i'm glad they decided to release it so everyone could hear it all right and we're gonna go a little bit latin to yeah. uh, finish things out. It's hard to stay away from that for me recently. Yeah, um, this was an interesting album too. I got yeah. something interesting to say about this. We've got Cliff Corman with mm -hmm. his new release on Tiger Turn uh, Records. Records, I say, I think this is digital only release and it's mm -hmm. called Brazilified. Now, Corman is a New York native. He studied with Barry Harris, Kenny Barron, Roland Hanna, Ron Carter, Dave Liebman, all big names. Got a doctorate 
at the Manhattan School of Music, uh, where he also created and led the Brazilian Jazz Ensemble. And then in 1981, he met the Brazilian clarinetist Paulo Moura at the Creative Music Studios World Music Institute in Woodstock. And that was a big turning point, um, resulting in his career focusing on Brazilian music. And he's also recorded with Jerry Mulligan, Astrid Gilberto, a host of other jazz musicians, produced a lot of uh, Brazilian-based music for the Chesky label. And uh, he actually lives in Brazil. And so I guess that music has uh, become the focal point of his life. Uh, Well, actually, in Brazil, too, he's on the faculty of the Rio Lobos Institute Unirio in Rio de Janeiro teaching popular Brazilian music and improvisation. So on this recording, Corman's on piano, the arranger of all the pieces, uh, also composes one work. We've got Augusto Matosa on bass, Rafael Barata on drums, and on two tracks, Paulo Levi, alto saxophone on uh, Speak No Evil and As Rosas Now Falam. We're going to begin with Guadalupe, Paulo Mora tune. This one begins with faint chiming percussion for the first 13 seconds or so of the recording. You might not be able to hear it if you don't have the volume up. Uh, That leads to uh, a rising sustained piano line with some dissonances. Percussive bass figures are added by Matoso, and Corman sweeps up and down the keys, darts around the piano as drums enter with toms. Uh, It stays amorphous with some more lower register keyboard flutters, then becomes silent. Around a minute and 40 seconds, Corman starts more running figures with added left-hand accompaniment and establishes a slow groove, joined by the drums in about 2 minutes and 20 seconds. And Corman sketches out the minor melody over tom work by Barata and crying bass figures from Matoso. Corman dances around with little figures and percussive chords building it up. It continues on with Corman's improvisations exploring harmonic and percussive rhythmic possibilities over Barata's changing patterns. Matoso keeps a bass pulse below. It gets quiet around six and a half minutes for Barata to solo on drums. He works it up from soft ideas staying mostly on toms. And Corman enters again with a dissonant swipe joined by Matoso. And after a pause, it flows with a gentle melodic strain into a more driving groove with percussive chords. It quiets down with some pulsing bass and final soft piano figures to end it. It's a volatile and interesting opening piece. Yeah, it's also um, very, um, should I say dissonant? I don't know, that's not really the right word, but it's it's harsh sounding, especially Mm. at the beginning. A lot of the the piano chords are really um, going for a harsh sound. Yeah. And I'm going to have something to say about that at the end, because the whole program is kind of interesting to me, Mm. the way this plays out. Track two, Viola Violar, a Milton Nascimento tune. You probably know this uh, melody if you're familiar with his music. Uh, It's a medium, even tempo that Corman gives drive to on an intro of percussive chords. A lighter strain of rising figures leads to the rhythmic melody that Corman intersperses with more rhythmic chord ideas. Matoso has the beat chugging with rising bass figures over light and clicky drumming by Barata. Corman works into a solo with contrasting lighter ideas with repeated notes to start. He gains intensity working complex rhythmic ideas with his right hand figures and runs, turning more percussive with two hand snappy figures, which Barata slams accents to. It comes down soft and Corman returns to the melody, adding soft embellishments and harmonic diversions. It works into a vamp for Barata to get busier on the drums under as Corman improvises short phrases on top 
working into some longer lines until it vamps rhythmically to a soft ending. And we've got the Hobim Tune Triste, soft and lush treatment of this famous melody from the start by Corman over deep and ringing bass from Matoso. Barata has faint cymbals to start and adds a light clicking groove on the second repeat. Corman shows a nice soft touch with his improvisations. I like how it's gentle, but the rhythms lock in together nicely in the trio. Corman gets more animated, but even his rhythmic figures have a smooth legato connection and nice melodies here. The drums have worked up to a heavier beat, but they bring it back down for another run through the melody. Next, they groove out on the repeating chords, light but with intensity that Corman builds through tension causing rhythms into a trill over his rhythmic left hand. It slows down to a lush ending with ringing piano lines into the high register. We've got uh, Wayne Shorterton, uh, Speak No Evil, that famous album cover. I think that had <laughs> what was soon to be his ex-wife, uh, Japanese lady on there, uh, but a great tune nonetheless. Paolo Levy joins in on alto sax for this tune. Corman works the famous riff with Levy improvising, and they lock in spots on the melody. Levy soloing first, working short phrases with some harmonic outside tension into longer held notes and more clipped phrases as he goes along. Corman has fun stretching out rhythms in the lines of his solo, and then working into some more harmonic exploration before being joined by Levy again. Matoso has a real throbbing bass going underneath all of this sax and piano, jam on it a, a bit back into the melody, and Corman continuing improvised ideas between the melody strains by Levy. Track 5, As Rosas Now Falam. Uh, this is uh, Angenor de Oliveira. I guess it means the roses don't talk. Hmm. Corman starts it alone with a gentle rhythmic left-hand arpeggio figure and descending ideas in the right hand. He treats the forlorn melody gently as well, adding lush harmonizations. Uh, the harmonies lift the mood in spots as it moves along. Corman plays some lovely chiming right-hand notes. Levy joins in for a smooth phrasing of the melody, Corman playing engaging accompaniment. Uh, bass and drums join in on the final strain of that, and Matoso continues on with a bass solo of longing, ringing notes. Uh, his rising, speedy lines seem to be reaching for something. <laughs> Uh, you know, that the bass can't quite get to. Corman solos next. He builds tension with pauses and dynamics, but also shows a smooth touch on running lines, building into some percussive chords for a climax uh, for Levy's return. He's got the intensity turned up here on the sax with rising lines into extended notes. They bring it down soft again for a little more melody and more final gentle lines from Corman and uh, Levy until it stops. Track six, Dininha. This is uh, Alfredo de Rocha Vianofiel to uh, a bass and piano duet. Corman and Matoso lock in from the start as the bass carries the melody. No drums, but very nice harmonies here. Uh, Corman takes over the melody, adding gentle rolling embellishments. It breathes and swells uh, nicely and naturally. Matoso has a solo working into the upper register with more ringing tones, uh, really making it sing on his melodies. Corman softly supporting him. It goes back to Corman. He gets more intense with ringing right hand notes and percussive chords. And then Matoso gets another round, adding some harmonizations in his bass. Then Corman again with more chiming ideas and agitated and percussive right hand uh, ideas as well. They lighten it up, working through the melody once more, leaving space but syncing their movement perfectly. Uh, there's very nice harmonic movement in the chords in the final coda added to the end. 
A very beautiful playing on this piece. Hmm. Track seven, Du Cor do Pecado, The Color of Sin. A solo piano piece here. Corman trickles out rising strains of sustained notes. A feeling of motion forms as he works. Lush flowing chord movements. Uh, Corman lets the melody flow, fast or slow, matching his accompaniment to the mood. A more even tempo sets in for a while with gentle rocking phrasing. Back to a more ebbing and flowing feeling, Corman moves into a section of his hands working in sync before some final rising phrases to finish it. Tone color, touch, dynamics, and phrasing draw you into this piece. It's fabulous immediacy in this performance. This is my favorite track on the album. Yeah, I just thought amazing solo playing. Great. Track eight is uh, Corman's uh, original, Brazilified. This one is uh, a busy drum intro, intro into this kind of happy samba tune. Corman plays the melody nimbly with fast, tight right-hand figures in the upper register. There are little stop-time sections and changes up of the groove before they reach a, a drum break ahead of Corman's solo. Matoso has a driving samba pulse over Barato's light, subdivided groove. Corman keeps his solo lines fleet and pushing ahead. Uh, listen to his left hand, too. Uh, feeding with choppy, syncopated chords. A lot going on there. After a big finish to the piano solo, Borata gets a short but animated drum solo. Uh, they go back around the melody with some stretched out final holds on the last chords. Uh, good high energy fun. And we're going to uh, end it up with a uh, reprise of Guadalupe. Similar to the first track, but in shortened form. Again, some light percussion tinkles lead to piano and bass. Similar to the first time we heard it, uh, ripping piano and agitated figures. It settles down for Corman to work sparse ideas into a forward-pushing rhythmic press of chords and some darting right-hand figures. They all join in on a slow groove, tapped out on Barata's toms as Corman works around the melody. Matoso floats the ringing bass figures as Corman works on some rhythmic right-hand ideas into crashing chords matched with hits from Barata. And Corman gets into a more emphatic exposition of the melody with choppy chords, it lightens and spaces out to the end softly over Barata's toms. All right, I want to say about this track, though, this is a much calmer version, I yeah, think, yeah. Of, of, than the opening track was. It's it's like it kind of lightened up a, a little yeah. bit by this point. It's also a little shorter. I thought this a very interesting and engaging recording of Brazilian-themed music, uh, sometimes harmonically challenging. On the other hand, sometimes incredibly beautiful. I like the material Corman's chosen to work on here, including his own uplifting original shows a lot of variety in his technique and approach over the recording a really great sensitivity and variety of touch and dynamics i enjoyed all of the trio pieces and the musicians interplay tozo's bass solos and tone were great uh, but my favorite was the decor do picado with corman's solo just because of the range of expression and the immediacy i felt uh in that piece this this is a pretty long record, actually, and I listened to it yeah. straight through when I heard it, and I'm glad I did, because I heard a trajectory to this material. Okay, mm. It's an adventurous listen, especially at the beginning, and it sort of mellows out as it goes, and mm-hmm. actually gets more comfortable to listen to, too, right. really almost like gradually, as though you're almost like releasing sort of like this anxiety as it goes. Yeah. We arrive again at the title track, and we're in, it's, it's almost like you had this, the first you had this really harsh experience in the first track and then you go through all the rest of the tracks and you get back to the first track and seen through the eyes of that track. Now it's a little calmer. So right. I thought, I wouldn't call this a darkness to light trajectory, but it's more of like a, 
so let's say an anxiety to contentment quality to the oh, album. Interesting. Like from the beginning to the end. This, this is my classical mind working here, always looking for the long mm. line. The group goes for some uh, disjointed material to keep the listener's brain working. Uh, Corman is constantly changing elements within his solos, jumping from one idea to another, back again. That was really fascinating. He has a yeah. lot of ideas. Um, you, you talked about um, in the... The, you know that you liked um di nina or the 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 bacado mm. he yeah he um he, he he has he's he's got a lot of ideas he's one of these pianists who just keeps coming up with uh like really interesting yeah. you know material um so i really like that um there's a kind of controlled chaos to his approach though in slower numbers he'll show a clear spontaneity of ideas i actually find him hard to sum up and uh, mm. I like the fact that he can generate so many contrasting ideas in the same track. But yeah, it just kind of felt like you know, I do a lot of you know meditation, and when your mind is really agitated, you, you, something happens, and then you're all agitated, and you you kind of meditate, and you just kind of let go of it, and then you go back into the same situation. And it's not as bad, but it's still bad. <laughs> That's kind of the impression I got oh, from the Guada the two Guadalupes and everything in between it. Like the part in between was the meditation section. Yeah. Anyway, that was my odd take on on this album, which I thought was really interesting. I liked it. Yeah, enjoyable. Mm. I like his uh, his his piano, you know, just playing style in general is kind of unique, and mm. uh, has a lot of different elements to it that can be both harsh and very gentle at the same time. Mm. And what I like too is this is he's working with you know these uh, brazilian composers famous works and it it is brazilian but it's not limited to just typically traditional brazilian elements it's it's jazz and expansive music uh, in this setting i found so right. uh, i found it to be kind of deep and yeah rewarding listen rewarding yeah it's a long recording but there's a lot uh, to dig out of it there's a lot of detail and i feel mm -hmm. like there's a trajectory i don't know yeah. if you intended that but i think it's there so yeah well, let's find okay. out. Maybe, yeah, maybe you know. we will find it. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, so there you have it. Three jazz recordings on piano, all very different, all very interesting. Yeah. Young up-and-coming player, something a little bit uh, experimental by uh, two veteran players, and an interesting, deep Brazilian dive with Corman's recording uh, to round out an all-piano program. It's a pianorama. That's right. <laughs> we did of, that one before. Hmm? Yeah, I think we're gonna have. Uh, did we use that title? Yeah, before? we used that before. We yeah, did. Piano That's Rama. a good one. Oh, yeah, well, we've to come up with something new then. We've got a tentative piano title for this episode. I think it's pretty good. We'll go with that. We're gonna have many more in the future. So got to come up with more piano puns. Anyone knows any piano puns? Please write them into us. That's right. We'll give you credit for the episode title. And I think uh, next week's gonna be uh, a little mix of uh, chambery kind of things. So. Yeah, I've got chamber music for next week. Interestingly enough, I'm starting out with string quartets, then going to piano trios, then going to flute and piano. So I'm going 4-3-2 oh. there. It's kind of a unique take. Okay. We're already trying to think of a title. This, takes, <laughs> this is what this is. This takes often more preparation than actually listening to the music, trying to come up with a title. Yeah, I'm going to have some uh, different mm -hmm. ensembles that and just don't quite lock into other categories, maybe neatly to pair them with. So... Uh, but they're things I, that came out this summer that I definitely want to talk to because they're interesting, uh, both yeah. in their instrumentation and in the music yeah. contained in there. Now that it's September, the uh, the autumn releases have started up in classical music. Now I'm getting barraged uh. with all this stuff <laughs> that I can, 
that I really want to hear. Yeah. And you, we can always hear them on Deezer, but I kind of like having CDs, and I really can't afford them now because of the the weak yen. Somebody's got to start uh, yeah. Do buying the yen so that the price <laughs> goes up. Boy, they're really killing us over here at the moment. Anyway, remember, if you want to know what the uh, recordings for next week are, you can uh, check out our playlist on Deezer. That'll be up shortly after this podcast gets released. It also goes over to the Facebook page, so you can uh, come over and click on it from there and uh, check with us on Facebook during the week for some new recording ideas, releases, or associated musical uh, things that happen during the week. And thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for glowing neon logo that always catches uh, new listeners' eyes. And this was episode 79, so next week's 80. Mike. Wow. Yeah, getting up there. Almost almost at the big 100. Coming right. soon. Yeah. So do check us out. Remember, uh, if you want to contact us directly, also you can get in touch by email, adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You know what's scary? What's that? Christmas isn't even like, you know, 20 weeks away. <laughs> it's, it's, really, yeah, I know. it's coming really too soon. <laughs> what's right. going on? So we'll have to get a Christmas episode and, oh uh, man! Well, that's you know we don't really yeah. know about that until November. Best of the year. We got to start yeah. thinking about that too. Well, that that's a little easier. The Christmas yeah. one, I don't know. Kind of. There's yeah. always Christmas like classical, but I don't really start. I don't want to start like I already have so much <laughs> classical Christmas stuff. I really yeah. don't want to just be adding to it every year. Yeah. You know, yeah, we have a podcast of starting to do that. You know, it's kind of. Yeah. Well, I don't want to think about Christmas yet. So. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, still it's not even the end of summer yet. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll see you for some chamber music again next week with episode eighty. So until then, keep listening and have a good week. Mm-hmm.